It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. They were all just a big hug, and. Every memory I have of them is connected and, and punctuated by the same moment of just a, f- a flood of them arriving and us all hugging each other in one big ball. Every time. And no pretense, no dishonesty, just totally present and completely full of like this effervescent, intoxicating love. That was just undeniable. All of us thought Devonte was going to be the president. You know what I mean? Marcus, God bless him. He, ne- I mean, Marcus never talked. I, I knew Marcus for four years, and he had his head in the books all the time. The most excited I ever saw him was that when that bird landed on the podium at the Bernie Sanders thing. He was like clapping and he was like smiling, and that was that was Marcus. Devonte, he reached out, but he was also like the most sensitive of the group. Hello, Nasheen. How are you doing today? I missed you. Thank for that birthday message. I love you so much. <laughs> Make some bean wraps today for my siblings. To me, it seemed like these children were so joyful and well-adjusted and engaging. I mean, they were all different. And... Marcus and Hannah were much quieter. They were much, much more observers and peripheral, and the part of me that prefers the edges related to them in that way. Um, and then um, Devonte and Jeremiah and Sierra were always right up in there, you know, engaging with everybody. Go, Abby, go. <laughs> She's washing her hair, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Devante was definitely the most outgoing and charismatic. You could tell that within him that he's a very old soul. But as we got to know the rest of the family, I really feel like Jeremiah and Abby would jump out of their shells and they'd just be these characters. I think that because their brother was so outgoing that it helped them to feel more comfortable in their own skin. I first met Jen in 2015. At that time, I was the leader of the game that we were playing, but it ended up being almost an everyday interaction. Jen was more of an inspiration, I think, on multiple levels for a lot of us. Being active politically for the rights of Black Lives Matter, huge. She was a huge persona, actually. I can't even put into words, but she motivated me to actually speak up and use my voice more. She was very honest. She would straight up tell you a lot, like, oh my God, your children are perfect, everything is wonderful. And she's like, no, they're still kids. There's still kids, like, there's still stuff that happens that, like, you know, you've got to deal with, but 
yeah, I'm really lucky because these kids are really amazing. And I am very, very blessed to have them in my life. So Sarah was often quieter, kind of like Marcus and Hannah were. And Jen was all, all, always like right there as well, um, right in the middle of things. Can what? you sneak for real? Not a real one, honey. Look at right here. You guys like it here, don't you? Yeah. Jen was, you know, just a very friendly person, good smile, good laugh. She seemed like a reasonable, polite person to me. She seemed frustrated with the problems of the world. Sarah was very quiet, definitely seemed a little more shy. I didn't really... I feel like I only really talked to Sarah once, you know, at a party. Like, all the other times with Sarah, I was like, hi, bye, kind of, you know. I started working with Sarah at Kohl's in Beaverton in 2015. She was always backed by kids and home. She had a earthy flow vibe to her. Sarah's a mystery to me. She was like this very quiet, very go with the flow, just like soldier, right? Constantly exhausted from working so hard, gets home, calm, even killed. There was that moment at Beloved Festival. You see Xavier gesture to like, come give me a hug. <laughs> As Xavier was hugging Devante and still singing, all of us saw it, he became very overcome with emotion, which would happen a lot. It was a very common occurrence that people would start crying. And he turned and with his sobbing face, he ran straight into Jen's arms. And when I saw that, I just started bawling because what I saw so clearly there was that he loved her, and she loved him. What I saw there, and, and again, I'm looking through my confirmation bias, I saw pure love. You are in the streets, blocking the roadway. You are unlawfully assembled. Everybody want me to be calm. Do you know how them bullets hit my son? We are Darren Wilson. First, immediately, or you will be subject to arrest. Do it now. What the world needs now might just be what we see in this photo. After days of disturbing media imagery, that moment in time, the picture that is out floating around on the internet and throughout the world, I think that just captured the moment. So apropos of what not only the community is asking for, what the nation is asking for, but what the world is asking for right now. I saw it online. Like most people did, I remember it's very specifically because Kim Kardashian <laughs> came out with that ridiculous uh, paste article of her butt, like popping something up in the air. And they were like, Kim Kardashian broke the Internet. And then yeah. it was Devante Hart <laughs> saved the Internet in the same day because <laughs> yeah. like it shut down the Internet of her butt. And then it was Devante hugging, you know, someone that brought everyone back up. I remember people posting and things just saying, resharing and resharing of, Oh my God, this child is healing me in a way I didn't ever think that I could feel this type of hope in a picture like this. If you've ever received a hug from Devante, you know, you knew that he meant it. 
He hugged you with the, the entirety of himself. He wasn't the type of person that was just like one of those little arm pats. It was. He, I remember um, when we first had our exchange of a hug. He said, "Oh, you're a good hugger. You hug yeah. heart. To, you hug heart to heart. You know that that's what it's about. It's about our hearts." He's like, "We have to hold. We have to give a second, and you squeeze, so people know that you really mean it." And at the time, I was like, "Wow, my mom taught me that. Who taught you that?" He's like, "My mom." I was like, "It's a good mom." He's like, "Yeah, she's okay." <laughs> it felt like to me like he really did, you know, in his own young way, want to make the world a better place, and that that he was initiating that. That photo going viral is um, is an example of social media success in some ways, of like a real story, a real human moment um, being captured that's not um, negative and is is really beautiful. I was struck when I went back and looked at how much interesting Facebook posts about her family and how often she was doing that. That would give you a, a lack of privacy, uh, you know, to be putting posting that much stuff about yourself. I don't think she did it intentionally, but it's definitely cultivating uh, seeds to have a viral video happen for you, or, or you know, a viral photo, by that kind of behavior, putting yourself out there that much. Now that I see tons of posts about the kids, interesting snippets where it's kind of personal. I never understood that dichotomy of the, 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 the what she would tell me about how much she didn't want to be in the limelight and then how much the posting and the, those types of things cause them to be in the limelight. I think this is an example of how that extremist and rapid uh, environment of sharing information blows over and doesn't look back to check back in on parts of the story that um, don't maybe necessarily fit a narrative that is that could go viral, that are more complex, more nuanced, and like, that's where our humanity is. The deepest truths about us are not totally black and white. There's a gradient. All the shade exists there, and like, that is so important to be able to have a venue for discussing that, and the mainstream media and social media are moving at such a pace that we don't even discuss in a context where our humanity can be understood. I remember Jen telling me she felt like she had PTSD as a result of that photo coming out. Someone taking something so beautiful and running it with it and creating so much hate and diversity. She felt like they would never escape people looking in from the outside and being suspicious and judging them and honestly the more people did that the more they closed off. I started to notice like the Sarah that I thought I knew she started to hide more she started to I guess withdraw herself. I think they probably didn't know how bad the reaction was gonna be I think they probably just god I don't know after, uh, you know, the picture of Devante went viral and, you know, the moms or Jen perceived herself to be the target of harassment, that's, at least according to one of her friends, that seems to be one of the theories about why she fell into a deep depression. It had to do with that photo going viral and all the, all the perceived harassment. From my observation, from things Jen told me personally and shared privately on Facebook, that the, the response, the public response to the hug photo was the snare that began the unraveling.
since I was young, I was in a placement. You know, I do is do good. I've been with my brothers. You know, when he was young, I used to always fight. You know, get in stuff, get in trouble. So I ain't have a time to, you know, regroup with them. By the time I try, I calmed down and got adopted. And so I was asked, like, I want to see my brothers. Can I see my brothers? And be like, nah, they, you, you a bad influence. Really, I want to say it's my fault, but then again, it's not. And I had no control over it. When I had control over it, I felt like it was kind of my fault. Don't let your kids get set up in the system. So then you get in that system, you lost. Those kids are never, they had no business leaving out of Texas. They took my life away from me. One of the impressions I got when you sent me the photos, uh, you know, of, their, of the Facebook feeds of Jen and Sarah is like how perfect they are, right? And the word perfectly curated comes up a lot. Um, and, you know, what that implies is um, curation implies an active image manipulation, essentially. So there were, uh, you know, they live the kinds of lives that they can project this perfect image of themselves because most of their quote-unquote friends were either through Facebook or there were kind of these temporary uh, encounters at festivals where they could, uh, on a temporary basis, project everything positive they wanted to project about them. The pictures of them playing in the snow. Those kids were not outside playing in the snow, but yet there's this picture of them, you know, and it's so perfectly propped with Devante and I think it was Jeremiah, and they're sitting out in the snow and they have a mug in their hand and they're probably, you know, drinking hot chocolate or where they're on the side of a lake and they are turning around and blowing kisses to mom. I mean, they didn't want to say me nothing because I might flip out in the place I was. So now that I found out, you know, I'm really kind of hurt, but then again, I can't bring him back. You know, so crying ain't gonna bring him back. So, I'm gonna take care of my son. He's a better father than I am. Within an hour of finding out, I was sitting at my desk and I was just sobbing. I couldn't even wrap my head around it. Uh, I didn't know any of the details yet. I just. All I knew was that the hearts, the entire heart tribe was gone. But at the same time, this just like piercing grief of like thinking about all of those children. I don't know what happened. Um, the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that that last moment was intentional, um, which is given the uh, undeniable and overwhelming beauty of that family of children, that decision is um, impossible. I just love them still, you know? If I, I just want, I, I know it sounds really weird and fucked up to say, but like, I would be like, I have your back, you know? And I know that that's the part that nobody wants to hear, but it's like, I just feel like I can feel their pain that they were in. And I feel so sad that somewhere along the line, someone missed something or we just let them down. And so I would just let them know like, yeah, I have their back and I, and if 
if they were here, I would listen to their story, and if we could do it all over again, I just would have helped them. I unfortunately think something horrible happened to him first, and that's why they left. I don't know what the internal turmoil was and desperation in different ways, and um, I don't know. I guess things can get hard and desperate, and people make people make extreme rash decisions, and I don't, I do not understand it. There's no understanding it. I don't. It's very touching. Uh, I'm sorry. And the reason why it's touching is because it just seems like that the children from kind of like from the beginning didn't stand a chance really. Because like I said, I'm sorry. Because both parents, like I said, they had uh, they had their issues. I used to pray every night. Like now you pray for something and it don't happen, so you, you start to believe. Like, where is God? Who is God? You know. I wasn't really the, the, the prayer type. When I was young, I used to pray my brothers to sleep, you know, and hoping something good would happen later on in the future. But it did, but and tragedy happened again. There was all this hate, and it was so immense. I mean, there were these threads upon threads of people who had never met them, who were talking about how viciously disgusting they were. I mean, I had people who were like, eat glass and die. I mean, all I was trying to do was protect my friends, but that wasn't happening. There was all this like, we're afraid to talk about it. We're afraid to say how we feel because you're just immediately attacked. One of Jennifer's closest friends is speaking out for the first time to our Gabrielle Carroll to help answer the question, who was Jennifer Hart? What do we know about her? We weren't duped. That love wasn't fake. They loved their children. They weren't white supremacists. They, they just were isolated. They were in pain. Myself and everyone else who shared our love publicly We've been judged as though there was some precedent by which we were supposed to behave. That there was some better way to do it, some right way that, you know, I realized really quickly that no matter what I said or didn't say, I, there was no way I was coming through this unscathed. We've had friends basically tell us that they can't even associate with us because we defend the Hart family. Our current dialogue is so extremist and and um, violent that we can't even make space for that. We're we're really we've lost our way completely. Festival friends, I mean, I'm, um, so they were very accusatory and telling and saying that we were completely off base and that we should have minded our own business. They called us all kinds of names. Being nosy neighbors, uh, I was racist. One of our friends said, forgive me for not assuming my friends were murderers. You know, again, everyone being so angry at us for speaking up. I want to say, like, imagine, try to put yourself where we are. 
Ideologues scare me, you know. Ideologues scare me because they're in the pursuit of that perfect, pure vision, they can be so extreme that they ignore all sense, all common sense and precaution. People would attack, um, and at one point I even told them, you know, it's easy for you people to sit here and, and accuse me of or say that, you know, I should have, um, but until you've walked in my shoes, until you know who I am, you can't really, it's not fair to say. There's not evidence that they're racist, and I don't see why, um, with a number of stories, why they would, you know, make that up. Um, they might not have interpreted everything that happened, exactly what was going on, but they're certainly not just <laughs> fantasizing about that. I think there was a huge tragedy. I think, I think all these, in the very beginning, there was a huge anger that I did feel, though, with the social media, was there was a lot of Black Lives Matter pages uh, taking arms and being like, told you so, these white crackers should never adopt us. And I was like, hold on, you know what I mean? Like, you can think whatever you want, but to exploit the tragedy of these children, to try and further your agenda on this just, really just frankly disgusting platform, which is Instagram, you know what I mean, or Twitter, I just felt like it was, you know, Hashtag too soon social media and just really just callous and, 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 and just such propaganda. They were put under a microscope in a way that I don't think anyone deserves to be put under. Yeah. I imagine that uh, Jen must have got to the point where she just degenerated to, like a, I guess, some kind of insanity. Um, and, you know, exactly how and when that happened and to what. Well, I don't know, but I can't imagine, like, getting to the point where, I mean, if, if you want to kill yourself, that's one thing, but I don't see why you would need to take anyone else with you. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, penultimate session on Roxana Asgarians. We were once a family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America. I will go quickly. The documentary that we started with, different from last week, this week, A Thread of Deceit. Now, this documentary, importantly, was released in 2020, that is two years after the crash, which was in 2018. Going quick. Oh my goodness, so much that I could say. Most of the documentary features white people. Most of them are the white homies and pals of Jen and Sarah Hart in the Oregon, Washington area. They start off talking about what an inspiration uh, Jennifer in particular was with her posting on social media and such and saying that her fight for the rights of Black Lives Matter. I don't even know what that means. Uh, then you heard a different white person talking about how Jen was so humble and saying, you know, if you would compliment Jen and say, oh, you have such amazing little Negro children. Uh, she was like, no, no, no. They're still kids. She'd be so humble about it. It's like, wait a minute. Uh, Jen was the one who was on Huffington Post talking about that they were crackheads and had been shooting guns and slanging dope since they were four before she got there. Remember that? So I don't know about the humble brag. Uh, they said 
Nasheen Bakhtiar, who is a non-white female, non-white, non-black, but she's also one of the pals of Jen and Sarah. She's the one who said that they, uh, Sarah had this like earthy flow and a really down-to-earth vibe. I don't know what any of that means, but that's sort of those types of metaphors and what they would call kind of new age talk spiritualism and all that is very popular in this part of the world pacific northwest uh the term love was used so many times at least five i think a few more uh in fact when they were talking about all this pure love that jennifer and sarah allegedly emitted when they weren't starving these children they cut to ferguson and you see Michael Brown Jr.'s parents and family uh, who are saying, burn this down and all the rest of it upset after they don't charge Darren Wilson. So you see all this, which is clearly not love, hatred and violence. Uh, and so then they segue. The white newscaster says what the world needs now. And then you hear one of their white homies say what the community is asking for. More, not just the community, what the world is asking for is for a starving black boy to hug, fondle a white enforcement officer. That's what the whole world at this moment, for folks who don't remember 2014, Ebola was a big problem at that time, even getting back here to the state. So at that time, that's what the whole world was asking for. You're out of your racist mind. Uh, And then they said that Dante, this hug thing saved the Internet, whatever that means. Metaphor. Uh, they, They said that several of her white friends and even Nasheen Bakhtiar said that they couldn't understand the contradiction where Jen would say that she was upset about all this attention on social media, but then she would post, post, post. They didn't understand that. That's because she was lying. She was lying in the post and then she was also lying. Oh, I don't like all this attention. Stop posting all the lies on Huffington Post. Uh, then we got, they just continued like with all the nonsense saying that, you know, that, that she, Jen was attacked about the hug photo with, uh, Devante uh, and saying that we lost the nuance. That's where our humanity is. The deepest truths are not black and white. That's where the context is. What are you talking about? Suspected racist, all these metaphors. And they go from that saying, Jen had PTSD from that photograph and you know they took something that was meant to be beautiful and to make it hate and diversity again I don't even know what that means and again a photo that continue she said that was uh, Nasheen Bakhtiar again the hate and diversity part non-white non-black female uh, they said that people were suspicious and judging them around this photograph they were already convicted child abusers at this point. There should have been suspicion. Uh, they, One of the white women, she said that the photograph and the ensuing alleged suspicion that that was the snare that began the unraveling. What kind of metaphor is that? They followed that I had to play extra just because you actually did get to hear both Dante 
in this clip. We heard a lot from him last week. No raw pork chops. And we got to hear from Nathaniel Turner. Dante is the only person in this documentary who does not have on a shirt. And because he doesn't, he's half naked, delectable Negro. You can see he's also kind of emaciated. He looks like he's been eating raw pork chops. You got to hear Nathaniel Davis. They do put subtitles on the screen so you can read what he's saying, but I didn't need an interpreter to get. They ruined my life. Don't let your child get caught up in the system. Got it, Nathaniel Davis. Nasheen Bakhtiar. She said, I know it's effed up, but I would say to Jen and Sarah, now she didn't include all the children. She just said Jen and Sarah specifically. I would just say, I got your back. I can feel their pain. And this is the same one who got in her jabs at Black Lives Matter and say, you know, you no count people they got on the social media and talking all this trash. Matter of fact, Nasheen Bakhtiar, this is the same one who got on the news and said they are not white supremacists. They were isolated. They were in pain. And to the folks, the Black Lives Matter people got on the Twitter and the Instagram and the TikTok and took arms and you you can't be taking our kids these crackers do man I said whoa 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 whoa, whoa. Nasheen Bakhtiar VGQ victims guaranteed qualified but I mean do you mean people getting on social media and spreading propaganda and vitriol like Jen lying and saying that these children were smuggling crack in their diapers at four years old and all of it is that the sort of propaganda and lies on social media that you mean or is it just black lives matter and that that especially stood out to me because frequently when white people and non-white people criticize black lives matter that jargon they use that phrase they just mean people classified as black in general you heard how she did that she did the whole voice and everything like oh my god wait a minute who are the folks who did the killing here was it black Lives? oh never, never. let's see she said Oh, man, it got so Sue Klebold. They said we were attacked, man. That was all of the Jen and Sarah's homies. They said we were attacked. We would try to speak up and defend them. Pause. If these had been two black people. Two black gay people. You can pick two black gay dudes, two black gay females, lesbian, whatever. Do you think? And they had killed six white children do you think it would be a gang of white people to come out and publicly defend them they didn't hate whitey they were isolated Leroy was in pain Jamal was hurting he needed help Leroy I got your back to you they said you heard from the decabs those are the neighbors we heard from them the decabs said the festival people, that's Jen and Sarah's friend. She said the festival people, they called us racist, said that we were nosy Nancys and sticking our nose in and calling social services, called us racist. I said, what? They called you racist? Then I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't we read that when Hannah came over there and said, I'm hungry, Hannah told the DeCabs they're racist and they're abusing us. And the DeCabs didn't report it. I said, ooh, now, 
I don't know if that's what the festival, the white festival people and Nasheen Bakhtiar, I don't know if that's what they meant when they said racist. But oh yeah, I could think of a reason. Anyway, uh, the speaking up for them and, and saying that they couldn't get through this unscathed, that poor Jen and Sarah went under a microscope and they must have went insane. All of that is so Sue Klebold and school shooter and just white people in general where they lie and sit around and make up all this nonsense. Hey, homies, these white lesbian race soldiers were accused of abusing children in Minnesota years before Michael Brown Jr. was killed. What was the excuse then? Negras in Minnesota, they had premonitions of what was going to happen to George Floyd. They were outside, keying her car, stressing them out. That's why they were abusing children in 2011 in Minnesota. Get out of here. We were once a family. Audio segment one, Catherine Massey Book Club. Thirteen. Something I could love unconditionally. As far back as Tammy can remember, she had always wanted a baby. As a young child, she had baby dolls, and she treated them like they were real. Her grandmother, whom she called Mom, brought her a baby alive doll, which moved its mouth and head, drank from a bottle, and even made a mess of its diaper. Tammy wanted real baby bottles for her baby, though, the kind with little disposable bags inside, and she asked for real diapers at the grocery store. She pushed her baby around in a classic full-sized pram, a gift from Mom and Papa, her grandfather. Mom and Papa were happy to oblige. Tammy had been living with them most of her life in Ingleside, Texas, after being separated from her mother, Maxina, as a toddler. Her father, John, was in the military, and he lived with Tammy and Mom and Papa when he wasn't on base. When Tammy was three or four, she began splitting her time between Maxina's house and her grandparents, and her caregivers began to notice alarming behavior. Tammy was acting out sexually at bath time and once tried to stick her hand down Maxina's new husband's pants. The family came to believe she had likely been abused. Tammy says she remembers her father's sexual abuse and that it happened early in her life. His wife, Trish, who is Tammy's stepmother, denies that it happened and says that Tammy had previously retracted claims she'd made about the abuse. Tammy's not a victim, Trish said. John recently had a stroke, can't communicate well, and declined to be interviewed. Tammy's grandparents are dead. But Tammy says her father moved out at this time, and she continued to live with her grandparents. Tammy's grandfather was a minister at the Ingleside Church of Christ, but he never reported the alleged sexual abuse. Tammy says that her grandmother apologized to her for that when Tammy took care of her while she was dying. From the outside, things at home were fairly perfect. Tammy wore pretty dresses with matching hair accessories, and her grandparents doted on her. Her grandmother volunteered as a class mom at her school. 
But Tammy had had strong sexual urges from a very young age, and she began acting out with other children. By the time she got her first period at age 11, she was no longer a virgin, having had sex behind a dumpster with a 13-year-old deaf boy while on a visit to her aunt and uncles in Columbus, Texas. Though they'd seen her act out, her grandparents didn't know about her sexual behavior outside the home. The Church of Christ is a group of fundamentalist churches, each independent. They are known for disallowing the use of instruments in church. Members believe that traditional a cappella renditions of gospel songs are how God intended them to be sung. While Tammy's maternal instincts were strongly encouraged, premarital sex was blasphemous and unacceptable. But for Tammy, the distinction was not so sharp. She started having sex at age 11 in part so that she could get pregnant. I just figured if I could be a mama, there had to be something I could love unconditionally, that they would love me unconditionally, and the world would be beautiful, she said. As she hit puberty, her sexual feelings increased alongside intrusive thoughts and terrifying feelings of being abandoned. She began to seek out boys and even men, and her grandparents, once so focused on providing her love and attention and clothes and toys, began to back off from her. In their three-bedroom house, what was once her playroom next to her room became her grandfather's office. Her grandmother stopped volunteering to be class mom, and Tammy, feeling rejected, became more and more urgently insistent on getting a man's attention. She began to frequent party lines, call-in numbers through which strangers would talk over each other in a group and find interested parties to pair off with in one-on-one -on -one chat rooms. She talked all night on the phone with guys of indeterminate ages until her grandfather got a $1,000 phone bill from charges to the Dominican Republic. He was livid, which only reinforced Tammy's desire to seek attention and care outside of her family. When she was 13, Tammy threatened to commit suicide and was sent to the San Antonio State Hospital. This was the first of three back-to-back -back stays there for threats or attempts of suicide. Their solution for everything at the state hospital is medicine. Get them doped up, you know? I mean, people walking around there drooling, it's like a really traumatic kind of thing, she says. Her last stint there was six months, while she waited for a bed at the Waco Center for Youth, another state-run psychiatric hospital, this one for 13- to 17-year-olds who had exhausted available community treatment resources. Waco Center for Youth took the opposite approach to medicine from the San Antonio Hospital. Tammy went cold turkey off her meds. I was just a mess, she says. During her institutionalization, Tammy was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, PTSD, and major depression. Borderline personality disorder is characterized by a crippling fear of abandonment, unstable relationships, impulsive behavior, self-harm, and difficulty regulating emotions. Researchers have linked BPD to childhood sexual abuse, and people with BPD are more likely than the general population to have PTSD, too. Tammy says now that she clearly sees her suicide attempts as bids for attention from her family, and her sexual behavior as an effort to create bonds with people who wouldn't leave her. But her struggle to form connections only ended with her family and partners pushing her away. 
Her father, during this time, started a relationship with Trish, who was then 17. Trish was just a few years older than Tammy, and Tammy was threatened by her. She felt that her dad's attention, which was already divided between her and his two younger sons from his second marriage, was even more limited now that Trish was in the picture. When her father and mom and papa drove her to the Waco Center for Youth, they were supposed to stay in the center's family cottage for the weekend while Tammy settled in. But Trish called to say she had been in a car accident, so her father and grandparents had to head back right after they dropped her off. Tammy would be in the Waco Center for Youth, hours away from her family, for 13 months. Throughout her time in the two state hospitals, she had maintained a relationship with a man named Mark, whom she had met on the party line when she was 13. He lived in California. He'd sent her pictures of himself. He was part Samoan with shiny black hair and in his 20s. Tammy snuck to call him from the payphone at the group home, and when she got back to her grandparents' house from Waco, he sent her money to buy a plane ticket to come and see him. She was 16 then and without telling her grandparents, she flew out to California just before Valentine's Day. At the airport, she didn't recognize Mark. He was significantly older than his photo suggested, with streaks of gray in his hair, and much heavier, too. He booked a motel room for them, but Tammy was too scared to sleep there with him. Instead, she sat in the lobby. The man behind the counter gave her a box of Valentine's chocolates and kept an eye on her all night. The next day, Mark drove her to the airport, and she went home. She was miserable back at her grandparents. She tried to avoid school any way she could. She hadn't learned much of anything at the two institutions, which had all the kids grouped together in one class despite their age differences. They were teaching her basic addition and subtraction even though she was beginning to learn algebra back at home. When she started back at school in Ingleside, she was nearly two years behind her peers, who made fun of her for being chubby and for being in special education classes. She hated it. She had no friends. She decided to quit. She got back in touch with her mother, Maxina, and on a Greyhound bus out to Georgia to see her for the first time in years, she met another, much older man. When she turned 17, she took the bus into Houston in order to link up with him but when she arrived in the city, he stood her up. You made your bed, you lie in it, her grandfather told her when she called him from the station. That was my lesson, and that's how I became homeless, Tammy said. She stayed in and around the Houston Greyhound station for a month before her grandparents allowed her to come back home. Shortly after coming to Houston the first time, Tammy began a relationship with a black man named Mark and got pregnant with Marcus, who was born when Tammy was 18. As Tammy moved between Houston and Corpus, spending stretches of time on the streets, Marcus stayed mostly with Mom and Papa. Mom and Papa were getting on in years, and Marcus kept them young. Papa brought Marcus along everywhere he went, and Marcus loved to ride around with him as they ran errands in his truck. Marcus was a live wire, his family recalled. He was diagnosed with ADHD and took medication for it. When he was three and a half, his little sister Hannah was born to a different father, also a black man. Things had calmed down a bit by then, Tammy recalls, and she mostly stayed with her children at her grandparents' house or with John and Trish in Ingleside, across the bay from Corpus in San Patricio County. That's where she was, pregnant with Abigail, when a series of events led to her entanglement with CPS. 
At a birthday party for Marcus in July 2003, Hannah, then one and a half, got covered with ant bites. When people noticed her screaming, Tammy dunked her in a kiddie pool to wash off the ants. Later, one of the bites got infected with a hard-to-treat staph infection, MRSA. They had to remove a chunk the size of a quarter and that deep and gave her IV antibiotics, Tammy says. A doctor informed CPS, which opened a case for potential medical neglect. Here in San Patricio County, I vouched for Tammy because it wasn't Tammy's fault, Trish says. As soon as Hannah started screaming and yelling, Tammy addressed the problem and did what she could. She got bit. She sought treatment for this. But CPS's involvement scared Tammy and made her question her ability to parent. She'd gotten pregnant a third time from a brief fling with another man. She initially decided early on to place the baby who was not yet born for adoption. I remember having an ultrasound and not wanting to look at the screen, she said. But Tammy moved, along with her grandparents, to Columbus, a small town west of Houston, where Tammy's aunt and uncle lived. Tammy reconsidered letting her next child go. Things had calmed down so much, and I could see light at the end of the tunnel, and I thought, yes, I could do this. Abigail was born the day after Christmas in 2003. Less than two months later, Tammy would lose custody of her children for good. It was February 2004, and the air in Columbus was cool and damp, even as flowers were starting to bloom. It was just weeks before Hannah's second birthday, and she had an upper respiratory infection that had turned into pneumonia. Tammy said she had taken Hannah to the doctor in Columbus on February 9th, and the doctor had changed Hannah's asthma medications and sent them home. But according to a police report filed the next month, Tammy did not show for a planned doctor's appointment the next day and waited too long to take Hannah to a hospital as instructed by a doctor over the phone. Columbus was a town of about 3,000, and Tammy didn't trust the local hospital. She said a nurse there had accidentally sneezed while giving Hannah a steroid shot for her asthma one time and jabbed the child with the needle. Tammy wanted Hannah to go to Texas Children's, an hour away in Houston, a world-class hospital in the Texas Medical Center. Tammy didn't have a car, and Mom and Papa were on a day trip to Austin. There was no one to watch Marcus when he got home from school or to care for baby Abigail. When Tammy called an ambulance, they told her they were unable to transport Abigail or Marcus along with them. With no one to care for her other two children, she was forced to wait for a ride. That ride was her caseworker, Sharon Kerby. Tammy remembers what was happening when Sharon knocked on her door. She had just changed Abigail's diaper and set the dirty one on the nightstand, putting the baby back in her bassinet next to her own bed. Hannah was burning up with a fever, talking gibberish, and Tammy was trying to calm her on the bed. On the TV, Finding Nemo, Marcus's favorite movie, was playing. The bus had just dropped him off from school. Marcus answered the door. Sharon was standing there in my living room, Tammy recalled. She had been scared to call Sharon because she didn't want it to look bad for her case, she says. She reassured me she wasn't taking the kids away and that CPS was there to help in other ways. At the hospital, though, things took a different tone. Marcus hadn't taken his ADHD medicine that day, Tammy remembers, and he was bouncing off the walls, sometimes leaving the room and wandering down the hall. She could tell the nurses were bothered by it, but with Hannah so sick and Abigail just two weeks old, Tammy had her hands full. 
After a while, a nurse came in and asked to speak to Sharon, the caseworker. When Sharon came back into the room, she told Tammy that CPS was removing her children. She already had the paperwork in her hand, Tammy said, crying. There's a close relationship between hospitals and child welfare agencies. In cases of child abuse, teams of pediatricians judge how children likely came to be injured. They also assess cases of medical neglect in which parents may be found not to have attained needed medical care for their children. Hospitals, and particularly public hospitals, are a key entry point into the child welfare system in another way. They choose which mothers get drug tested at the birth of their children, and if those tests are positive, they can report the mothers, at least in Texas, for physical abuse. Tammy felt blindsided by the neglect charge because she had been working to get a ride for her family to the hospital. The open CPS case over Hannah's staph infection in Nueces County likely influenced the doctor's determination that her delay in getting Hannah to the hospital constituted medical neglect. Colorado County not only removed Tammy's children, but also charged her with child endangerment. The indictment says that she did intentionally, knowingly, recklessly, or with criminal negligence, engage in conduct by omission that placed Hannah Holiday Shurick, a child younger than 15 years of age, in imminent danger of death, bodily injury, or physical or mental impairment by failing to seek medical treatment for her. Tammy was originally given three years of deferred adjudication, which is similar to probation, but after she failed to pay the monthly court fees totaling $225 and missed assigned community service, she was given 30 days in jail in April 2005. After she got out, she again failed to follow court orders, which included paying $1,266 in fees and was sentenced to another six months in jail on December 19, 2006. Tammy was on a fixed income of just over $600 a month from her disability benefits. She said she didn't have any extra money to pay the fees. I just didn't follow through with my probation stuff. I'd go and report for my probation visits, but as far as paying anything, I didn't pay anything, Shurik said. I didn't have the money to pay. The relationship between an inability to pay fines and incarceration is well documented. Many jurisdictions around the country rely on punitive fines and additional court fees to help fund their court systems. It's largely ineffective, as an analysis by New York University's Brennan Center for Justice found, because the cost of jailing those unable to pay is so exorbitant. It also leads to jailing people for being poor. Middle-class people can pay fines and fees easily, while to those who are on a fixed income, like Tammy, $225, let alone $1,266, is an amount that's impossible to raise. Jail was traumatizing for her. Tammy hadn't had much criminal involvement besides a couple of minor infractions, and to her, there was no greater punishment than the loss of her children. Although she had an extensive documented history of mental health issues and was and is receiving federal disability benefits because of them, Tammy was not offered any mental health support during her CPS investigation or the subsequent relinquishment of her rights. She lost confidence that she could be a good parent. Her abandonment issues intensified. 
Qualitative research has shown that parents with borderline personality disorder struggle to manage their mental health and to simultaneously be the parents they want to be. A 2020 study of 12 parents and 21 practitioners who served them, published in Frontiers of Psychology, found that parents with BPD sometimes experience emotions so intensely that it becomes hard to attune to the emotions of their children. Many of the parents describe childhoods lacking nurture and love or characterized by anger and violence. Some experienced abuse in childhood or adolescence, often perpetrated by individuals within their family. For parents, their experience of being a parent was directly related to the maladaptive parenting they had experienced, to traumatic early life experiences, or both, the researchers wrote. The study's participants said they were largely unable to access support in parenting, and for those to whom support was offered, many were afraid to accept it. This was often rooted in a fear of child removal, the study's authors wrote. The first time Tammy was involved with CPS in Ingleside, she'd completed all her parenting classes and the rest of the stipulations of her service plan. But with her children gone, what use was there to follow through on community service? When Tammy lost her children, she entered a deep depression. Normally a clean freak, Tammy couldn't get herself out of bed to take a shower or to take out the trash. The dishes that were in the sink when she'd gone to the hospital stayed there so long that maggots grew on them and turned to flies. The shades stayed drawn all day and night, and Finding Nemo played on a loop on the bedroom television. Tammy lay in bed for days, watching Marlin, the worried father fish, traverse the ocean searching desperately for his lost son. After that day in the hospital with Hannah, Tammy would never again have custody of her children. Months later, she voluntarily signed away her rights, expecting that the kids would be placed with the foster family they had been living with in Missouri City, a suburb of Houston. She was in touch with the couple who was fostering them, and they assured Tammy that she would be able to stay in their lives. But later, she found out through CPS that the adoption fell through. The kids were adopted out of state instead. Very few details of the foster family exist. The children's case files aren't available, and neither Tammy nor her caseworker can remember the family's name. Because Texas seals all its CPS and adoption records, it's unclear why the initial placement fell through. Tammy remembers the family as a black couple with three children of their own. She thought they would provide a good home for her children, all three of whom were biracial, they even took the kids to Disney World, she remembers. I had talked to the foster mom and had everything mapped out in my head how it was going to be, she said. And it didn't happen that way. Tammy holds a special heated grudge, a passionate hate, actually, for her caseworker, Sharon Kirby. She'd trusted Sharon, gotten close with her. She remembers Sharon taking her out to eat and once stopping at a Ross to help Sharon pick out a suitcase. She now feels manipulated, lied to, and coerced into relinquishing her rights based on what she now sees as incorrect information. She didn't know her kids would be sent so far away. She didn't know she wouldn't be able to see them or get updates on their lives as she'd worked out with their foster mother. And she sure as hell would never in a million years have fathomed that they'd be sent somewhere to be abused. 
Tammy read in news stories that Marcus and Hannah seemed to get the worst of Jennifer's rage. Why, she wondered. Why was Hannah so small? When she first saw their photos in the news stories, she thought Hannah must have been Abigail. She was never small like that, she says. She has hatred for Jennifer and Sarah, sure. But they are already dead. It's Sharon, she thinks, who really deserves to suffer. Sharon Kerby is no longer with the agency. She goes by a different last name now that asked that I don't identify it. She said Tammy had a pattern of neglecting to seek medical care for her children and that Tammy should have called her earlier to take Hannah to the hospital. She doesn't remember the names of the kids' foster parents either, but she vaguely remembers that the couple was having marital problems and that they decided they couldn't care for all of the children. Trish and John wanted Marcus, Sharon remembers, but Trish had recently broken her back and was worried about how she could take care of a toddler and a newborn. I did everything I could for those kids, Sharon said in a Facebook message to me. I loved them. Her priority, she says, was to place the siblings in one home. We try to do everything we can to keep them together, she added. It's hard enough to lose your parents and or family, but to lose your siblings and never know where they went is worse. When Jennifer and Sarah Hart saw the children on the Texas Adoption Resource Exchange website, they reached out and were put in touch with Sharon. They spoke by phone, and she took to the couple immediately. On Abigail's second birthday, the day after Christmas 2005, Jennifer and Sarah came down to Houston to meet Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail at their foster home, the first step in deciding if the children would be a good fit. This meeting is when Jennifer first held baby Abigail, later posting on her Facebook that she instantly fell in love. The Hearts still had their foster daughter, Bree, at home, but by March 2006, Bree had been sent packing and the Hearts moved their new kids to Minnesota. By September that year, the children were formally adopted. Sharon says she spoke with the children after the adoption. They never disclosed anything to me, she said. I had a great relationship with the kids before they were adopted, so I felt like they would have told me if something was wrong. In February 2007, Jennifer sent Sharon an email telling her that a little bird told her that Sharon would be in South Dakota and suggesting they meet up. Sharon said she had to wait to book her trip because she was waiting on a review for another family from the Interstate Compact on the Placement of Children, the same process the Hearts had gone through. Oh, and Marcus just came back from his final Dr. Spaulding, med doctor, visit today, since he has been off meds completely since November, Jen responded. Doctor said he didn't need to come back anymore since he is doing so well. He wanted you to know. Sharon did end up visiting the children in Minnesota after they were adopted in an unofficial capacity, she told me. And it was Marcus who had convinced her that the kids were really happy with the hearts. Marcus was a very withdrawn child when we took him into care. He did not open up until he had been with the Hearts for a while, she said. It was one of the things that gave me a good feeling about them. He was withdrawn even in the foster home before them, but once he was there, he opened up, was talkative, and more expressive. When she heard about what happened to the family, she cried for days, even though she didn't believe at first that Jennifer had deliberately driven off the cliff. I thought they had it wrong, and it must have been an accident. Honestly, I'm not sure I still don't believe that it wasn't, she told me in 2021. 
I asked her if she had read detailed accounts of what had happened to the family. She said she hadn't. I asked her if she had any thoughts about what might have happened. I don't, she said. No one can predict the future, and I can only assume something happened that caused such a drastic change. Trish Shurik says that she and John wanted to take Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail when they were removed from Tammy. Yet for some reason, she says, Sharon would not do a home study on them, the first necessary step in order to place children with their relatives. Trish supposes it might have been because she'd recently broken her back at that time and had a limited capacity to provide care. Reports of John's alleged abuse of Tammy as a child did not reach Sharon and thus played no role in her decision. After she lost Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail, Tammy had two more children. Alex, not his real name, was born in 2006, and John and Trish took custody of him without CPS initiating a court case when he was two months old. Tammy had been precariously housed and had Alex while living in a motel. Baby John was born in 2008, five weeks early, and although her father was with her in the hospital when she gave birth and she named her youngest son after him, she chose to place him in an adoptive home rather than give her father and stepmother custody. The relationship between Tammy and her father was always rocky, but in this period, it became volatile. She thought that her family's behavior was, at times, racist, and she resented their front and center role with her children. After baby John was born, he was put in the neonatal intensive care unit, and the hospital communicated with Tammy's father, John, directly, bypassing Tammy herself, she says. By the time baby John came around, Tammy had found an institution she trusted. Kim and Martin Dale ran a street church, a weekly pop-up of sorts. It was located just behind the main drag in Montrose, Houston's gay neighborhood, which acted as a magnet for the city's young homeless people. They'd preach to the street kids while feeding them dinner. And through this weekly event, Tammy came to know Kim well. She decided to arrange for baby John's adoption to a family Kim knew in the Houston area. This caused a major rift between Tammy and her father and stepmother, who never quite forgave her. When I lost my kids, I lost my direction. I didn't have anything grounding me anymore, Tammy says of her first three children. I couldn't even bond properly with them when I had my last two children because I was so scared they were going to get taken away for some reason or another. As for Alex, he began to act out violently at around five or six, which only worsened when, in the midst of a blow-up fight with Trish, Tammy told Alex that she was his real mother. Up until that point, Alex had thought he was the child of Trish and John. Increasing acts of violence against other children and animals in the home, Trish said, led them to have Alex placed in an institutional treatment facility, where he has been for years. John and Trish stopped speaking to Tammy after that fight. Over the years, she would sometimes call, always from different numbers, Trish said, but the couple stopped wanting to have anything to do with her. Things couldn't get much worse between them, but they were all badly shaken by the news of the three oldest children's deaths. Trish took to bed and stayed there for several days. She tortured herself reading every single account she could find of the heinous crimes committed against her grandchildren. I said, you know, Tammy, I blame you and I blame CPS, but I also blame us, she told me from bed days later. It's hard to accept that you failed, and child protection failed. 
I was looking at my granddaughter yesterday, and she favors Hannah. What could I have done more, better? Her mind kept returning to the last time she saw Marcus. They were at Papa's house, and she was sitting at the kitchen table with him while he had some cookies and milk. He asked for more milk, and as Trish got up to get it for him, his cup, with some milk still in it, knocked over and spilled out. Uh-oh, he said, looking at Trish to gauge her reaction. I told him, that's okay. Messes are meant to be made, she remembers. Marcus smiled and dipped his cookie into the puddle of milk on the table. Fixed it, he said with a big smile. She reached over the puddle of milk on the table, poured more milk in his cup, and grabbed a cookie for herself. Those are my memories, she said, and they're all I have. While Tammy was at the women's shelter in Mobile, she joined several of the Facebook groups that had sprung up in the wake of the crash. Those sites often focused on theories about the children who remained missing and the psychological motives of the heart women. Tammy mostly joined the groups to screenshot photos of her children, marveling at how they'd changed in the time since she'd last seen them. At first, she kept silent, but then she decided to reach out to one of the moderators. They became friends of a sort, and when the woman heard of Tammy's plight in Mobile, she posted to the group about her situation, asking for donations to help Tammy leave town. But later, Tammy and the Facebook group monitor would fall out. The woman would tell the group that she thought Tammy lied about being suicidal and took advantage of her kindness to get donations. What I am struggling with is that she used the compassionate hearts of all of you, she wrote in a long group post. Tammy maintained that she showed the woman receipts for the luggage and the bus ticket and that she hadn't lied about anything. But the situation was complicated by the fact that she had also fallen out with the friend she had been staying with in Houston. That friend, Michelle Reedy, had picked Tammy up from the Greyhound station and taken her back to stay at the apartment that she shared with her adult son. Tammy brought along her Yorkie, Toto, who came with her everywhere she went. She cleaned the apartment and cooked meals to express her gratitude for the place to stay. But as the situation soured with Michelle and her son, Michelle reached out to the Facebook moderator to complain about Tammy, whose problems had spiraled. Soon, she'd be on the move again. Not long before that happened, I went to see Tammy at Michelle's apartment in Northeast Houston. She sat at the dining table, chain-smoking, and blowing the smoke through the open sliding glass door and out to the balcony. It had been four months since I found her, and since she learned that her children had been killed. We were finally meeting in person for the first time. Tammy has a weather-worn reddish tan face and a bumblebee tattoo on her cheek up near her right eye. Her eyes are a piercing blue-green, and her smoky voice is peppered with Texanisms. The air coming in from the balcony was chilly. It was February, and she'd just gotten back to Houston. Usually, missing front teeth in an adult causes a speech impediment. Tammy's voice, however, is smooth and husky. She has just the tiniest hint of a lisp, which is mostly masked by her drawl. Her natural underbite showed her bottom teeth instead of her top row, which made the missing ones almost imperceptible. These two and this one are out, she says, pointing to the empty space in her mouth, and these two are broke off at the gum. Tammy explains that a fight with her husband, Rob, is responsible for the loss of her teeth. 
He knocked one of my teeth out in the front, and I had to go get another one pulled out because he had hit me so hard, Tammy recalls. I told Rob, why don't we get this one taken out to the side, and then we'll just tie a string around this one and slam a door or something, which I'm glad I didn't. She pauses to blow smoke out the back door. She'd left Rob before, and she'd even stayed with Michelle before while broken up with Rob, but she'd always gone back, usually days later. Not this time, she told me. She felt fully healed. He was calling her, she admitted, even as we sat there talking, but this time she was moving on. Tammy and Rob had gotten together after baby John was born. Rob was a military man, like her father, and as a result, he managed PTSD, along with several other serious mental health diagnoses. When they met, Rob was living in a single-room apartment in a complex designated for low-income or homeless veterans on the edge of Houston's Montrose neighborhood. They had both been homeless on and off through the years. She says she never developed a drug habit and adds that she always felt accepted among her peers on the street in a way she never felt in her real life. The streets have been one of those places that I always kind of turn to because the people out there don't look down on you, she said. It's almost like a family, if you think of it like that, and you don't get judged. Everyone has a story. The violence was intermittent, not constant, and that's what made it hard to quit. Rob could be charming, sweet. He understood the things she'd been through as he'd been through a lot himself. But his anger could turn on a dime and especially when he was drinking, he could be violent, hurtful, and mean. Tammy could lash out herself. That was something she was quick to say, and it ended up softening his abuse in her eyes. If she left Rob for good, then she was really alone in the world. No family, no one to love her. Her worst fear, and the things she'd spent her entire life trying to avoid. She was adrift again, like she'd been after her children were first removed from her care. Her family didn't want to rekindle their relationship, and her friendships were splintering. She'd be back in Mobile with Rob by spring. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. We will pick up audio segment two, chapter 14, Death at the Hands of Another which immediately reminded me of the book by Philip Dre at the hands of persons unknown. Exact same context, lynching, killing black people. But this time we do know who the hands belong to, but death at the hands of another. Anywho, the number to dial 605-313-51. 64 the code 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate so we got literary scholar or I guess two questions here one being literary scholar so last week Man, the Negro trauma drama. We got the raw pork chops and can't get the uh, Social Security benefits. Disability transferred over for Dante. He's arrested and all the rest of it. What did they do to you? 
Remember, that's what Nathaniel Davis asked about Dante. So we got all that last week. What are the differences or similarities between the way the biological mother and or biological so-called family members are described? We heard all about, like I said, Dante, Nathaniel Davis, Sherry, that was last week with the mop of slick black curls, right? We heard all about that last week, raw pork chops, like I said, differences, similarities with the way that we heard Tammy, Trish, John, white side of all of this, biological relatives of Marquise, Hannah, Abigail, was it the same? Was it different? If different, different how? Let us know. And the other one, we're finishing this book next week. So major thought exercise. Like I said at the beginning, if this had been two non-white people, two black people, you could take your pick, two black dudes, two black females, lesbian, whatever, cisgender, whatever, shake it up how you want. How do you think the risk or what do you think the response would have been like? You can even think about that one. If they had done this same way, six non-white children or even better yet, if it had been six white children. But either way, what do you think the response would have been? Do you think they're white homies? If they had done the same sort of thing, come out here to the Pacific Northwest, gone to all the goofy new age festivals and such. Do you think they would have had a gang of white people out to defend them? They just hurting they needed help I stand by you my black brother LGBTQ pride my black brother black sister whoever you know anyway the email until justice at gmail dot com until justice at gmail dot com get one email then we'll see folks have commentary on the first portion of the audio let's see email number one let's see okay email number one Uh, and this also includes commentary from some of the documentary that we heard last week broken hearts where they uh, were they were at the beloved festival and they talked about we talked her uh, talked about that last week where they had Don uh, excuse me Devante he was in the zebra costume like an animal and he gets up on the stage and does this long embrace with a white man uh, and the white man starts crying and everyone claps all, all of that that's a festival that she's ref- uh, referring to uh, so Oh, I found it telling that Jennifer focused on Devante and presented a narrative that he was rescued, a rescued crack baby. We heard about that. It also made me extremely angry when I saw a child, the child, Devante, in a zebra print leotard with a tail. These women had them out at those hippie festivals, making them hug on all manner of strangers and soak up different 
weirdo energy. Did the children even want to be there? Hugging on strangers? Question mark. Devante seemed to be crying in many photos and videos. It screamed uncomfortable. I noticed that Jeremiah never looked happy and they didn't focus on him at all. They likely couldn't manipulate him the way they were able to do with Devante. I'm not sure why the oldest child didn't do more to get away, but since he was half white, perhaps there was some level of white identification where he kind of trusted these women, but more likely he was terrified. That's uh, Marquise. But wait, we have to be super racist on the way to a murder-suicide. We can definitely kill these nigra children. Skipping one sentence because it's coming up in the next uh, chapter. Uh, I'm very affected by this book, as have many listeners, readers have said. One of my good friends grew up in New Jersey's foster care system. His mother was also forced to terminate her parental rights. Very easy to do. He was in foster care from 8 to 18 and never allowed to go back home. We heard about that. He was sent to a group home when he was 15. His three brothers grew up separately from him and they all had to find each other as adults. One brother is an ex-convict, another is mentally ill, and another is just surviving. My friend thought uh, thought my friend through a very hard work though a very hard worker is unable to finish anything he starts and will often refuse medical care because his early experiences were with state provided services tough read but necessary for learning how this system operates I can't find where the judge in Texas who allowed this travesty was ever investigated for trial child trafficking I highly suspect that he was receiving kickbacks from placement agencies uh, that would make sense to me especially since she gave the whole scheme of how uh, to get you know assignments in all of this for placing these children and to be one of the attorneys and all of that he you know you got to pay me a certain amount of money to get on this because this is lucrative money you want to get in on this we're going to be shipping negras all across the country you know that type it would not surprise me at all i mean especially she said it was like millions of dollars just the state of texas and getting all this federal money and then the hearts are getting money too so would not surprise me at all and then the judge remember now this is same judge his daughter is out decapitating people and drinking underage and all the rest of it so mm. uh, much obliged email number one uh, let's see getting one more email uh, while folks are I guess getting their thoughts together collating uh, observations from chapter one email number two uh, greeting Gus recent famous suspected racists who have adopted black children uh, government Amy Coney Barrett Justice of the Supreme Court Mike Johnson Congressman Speaker of the House Mitt Romney uh, which uh, Melissa Harris Perry got in trouble for making jokes about Mitt Romney's transracial adoption uh, actors musicians Angelina Jolie Brad Pitt Charlize Theron uh, Madonna, Robert De Niro, Sandra Bullock, Steve Spielberg, Jane Fonda, Hugh Jackman, Michelle Pfeiffer, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman. The bottom line is that these two racist psychopaths had way more access to resources than the black birth parents in order to treat these children correctly. What they did to these children was a choice. If they felt they were overwhelmed, there were alternatives. 
give them back to the system. Absolutely. The system will be more than happy to take them off of your hands. We can get some more money and ship them someplace. Uh, There's no problem. (laughs) You can always send Leroy back. And they got more children. We already read that. If they were feeling overwhelmed, could have stopped at three. You didn't do that. Could have stopped at Bree. In fact, hey, got my rhyme on for Negro History Month. But they could have stopped at Bree. You had one white child. That was my Negro History Month alarm. But they had one white child who was older. They could have stuck with their one white child. See how we get through with this one. Training wheels, so to speak, right? And then if it all works out, then maybe we step up. And they didn't want to do that. They kicked her to the curb to get their three. And we're looking to get more. Choice. Chapter 13. One. Tammy says she remembers her father's sexual abuse and that it happened early in her life. Tammy had previously retracted claims she'd made about the abuse. Tammy's grandfather, he never reported the alleged sexual abuse. Having had sex behind a dumpster, Tammy's maternal instincts were strongly encouraged. Started having sex at age 11 in part so she could get pregnant. In other words, she was reared by religious zealots who may have covered up for a pedophile maternal instincts does that have does that having make you have sex behind a dumpster question mark I, that's yeah that would be yeah <laughs> yeah I don't even know how to put that that now we have heard that before religious zealots and they still do not snitch on a white child rapist we've heard that one over and over and over two tammy remembers the family as a black couple with three children of their own sharon uh the caseworker she doesn't remember the names of the kids foster parents either vaguely remembers that the couple was having uh, marital problems decided they couldn't care for all the children i don't know i'm suspicious is it that the black family could not care for the kids or the caseworker did not want them because they were black that's a good question i was kind of thinking the same thing as well since everybody's saying you know my memory is bad i don't i ain't even i don't know the name since everybody's memory is all bad like eh. is that i mean now certainly system of white supremacy is not designed to support marriages any marriages really white black anybody but that could be but man Man, see, it's so convenient. I don't remember any details about this and we weren't racist and we didn't ignore a potentially healthier alternative placement that would have been close so that the biological parents could have stayed in these children's lives, much less they would have still been alive. It is very convenient to just ditch all the blame on the black men that, oh, they didn't want to do it and they were fighting and they were struggling to take care of their own and they just abandoned the whole thing. Yeah, you know, what are you going to do? anyway three Tammy had two more children she thought that her family's behavior was at times racist Trish had recently broken her back and was worried about how she could care for a toddler and a newborn as for Alex he began to act out violently blow up fight with Trish Tammy told Alex that she was his real mother the utter chaos and dysfunction in this family is astounding the author seems to be trying to narrow the dysfunction to Tammy. Hmm. I bet 
you could find a lot more incorrect behavior with John and Trish, maybe an arrest, drug use, I don't know. How was that back broken? We didn't get details on that either. Lots of the see, that's that's one thing I'd say right there. Now we start this here program, we have guests and such. Definition of racism. Let's get that, you know, what do we mean when we say this term? With all the confusion, you've heard the number of people who say, Gus, your definition is lame, you don't know what you're talking about, blah blah blah. This is the real definition. Non white people don't do that, but whatever. Uh this is what the definition ought to be. See, lots of people have different definitions. No problem there, but just make that explicit. And she says, my family was a touch racist. What does that mean? We got all the Negro trauma drama last week with the black family. What does that mean? They were a little bit racist. Did they say things about black people? Did they say things about you having sex with black people? What? How was their racism manifested? That would have to be, all that would have to be, you know, more details, more details. We're going to get all the details and raw pork choppiness and everything else. You got to give me all the details uh, when you go and talk about the white family. And I feel like that's, he said, narrowing. That's just omission. Omission tell you everything you want to know about the Negroes and all their problems with the white people. Number four, Tammy has a weather-worn reddish tan face and a bumblebee tattoo on her cheek up near her right eye. Her eyes are a piercing blue-green and her smoky voice is peppered with Texanisms. Her natural underbite showed her bottom teeth instead of her top row, which made the missing ones almost imperceptible. The author is trying way hard to make this haggard-looking white woman seem attractive. That's what, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, you're missing teeth and tattoos and I don't even know what a Texanism is. Like, you would have to, (laughs) that's what I mean. Like, see, I feel like that's one, that's one right there. With Dante, we got the whole letter. She didn't tell us Dante spoke fluid South Texas Ebonics. She gave us the full letter so you can see how ignorant and illiterate and stupid Dante is. No problem. He didn't go to school and all that. You told us that. Black males. (laughs) No explanation needed. With Tammy, Texanisms, you can barely even notice snaggletooth, rotten teeth, and everything else from all the day. You barely even notice. Well, you'd normally have a lisp, missing all those teeth. But I mean, hey, her groovy Texas accent masks that too. Wow. Come on, as Gary. Uh, let's see. Number five. Rob was a military man, like her father. And as a result, he managed PTSD along with several other serious mental health diagnoses. It seems as if the suspected racist always has a psychiatric diagnosis excuse for their incorrect behavior. Example, Dale is depressed and the massacre at Columbine was a suicide. It's always a mental health episode of some sort. They said they said in uh, a thread of deceit, the white man said that Jen just must have went insane. 
I mean, she must have had some sort of a psychiatric break to do all of this every time. It's got to be white people have some sort of mental illness. No, no, that is not it at all. They made a conscious choice. In fact, they investigate. You don't know all the details that's coming up in the next chapter. That'd be another question. Uh, the people listening in, did you all know these six children were drugged before they went off the cliff? Just for the people that are listening in, if you have thoughts as we're moseying along, were you aware of that? I don't feel bad about it being a spoiler because we are literally, that is about to come up very next chapter immediately and all this is six years old, so I mean what's the surprise? But did you all know that? That we get lost, right? In all the the horror of all of this, but that these children were drugged before they went to oh Mike Swango again. But were you all aware of that? It could have been that I forgot that detail, but I think I might actually have not known that they were drugged and then Alright, that's email number two. We will pick back up once we read a little bit more. Uh, folks who dialed in, get to some of those now. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Lauren should be with us. Nab other hands as I see them. Um, hello, everyone. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I this section. Um, wow, uh, the Tammy section is interesting. I think Roxana Ascarian does an excellent job of making the reader feel empathy for Tammy. Um, a lot of backstory on Tammy to make her erratic behavior seem more, I don't know, somehow acceptable or to make the reader more understanding of it. Um, the the name of the chapter is Something I Could Love Unconditionally. And it seems like she was talking about um, having a child. Um, I noticed it was something I could love unconditionally and not someone. Um, uh, let me see. I was... Just, you know, a lot of this backstory, um, the sexual urges from a very young age, acting out with other children, that does seem like the behavior of a child who has been um, sexually, I don't know, abused, molested. Um, and by the time she gets her first period at age 11, she's no longer a virgin, having had sex behind a dumpster with a 13-year-old deaf boy while on a visit to her aunt and uncle's house in Columbus, Texas. They put that in there, but she probably had sex with, before with whomever molested her. I don't know. There's all sorts of molesting, molestation, so I, I guess I can't really say. Um, let me see. Um, it says, her father during this time started a relationship with Trish, who was then 17, Trish was just a few years older than Tammy, and Tammy was threatened by her. She felt that her dad's attention, which was already divided between 
her and his two younger sons from his second marriage was even more limited now that Trish was in the picture. It seems like a really um, uh, immature way to think about it. I mean, you have siblings, you know, your parents spend time with the other siblings. She more acts like that's talking about her father like it's her boyfriend. And I think it's, that's weird. And him talking to a 17-year-old, uh, starting a relationship with a 17-year-old, it makes me think that, you know, they're having sex. Um, it makes me think that there might be some truth to Tammy's molestation accusations against her father, John. Um when it said that the grandfather, I guess it would have been the great-grandfather, um, the white man who Tammy called Papa, said Papa brought Marcus along everywhere he went, and Marcus loved to ride around with him as they ran errands in his truck. I read that part. I just wanted to know what Papa's friends, his white friends, were saying about him riding around his black great-grandson. Um, let me see. There was another line in this one. It said, she reassured me that she wasn't taking the kids away and that CPS was there to help in other ways. Man, it seems like when the CPS worker says they are not going to take your children, they're probably going to take your children. And, and I don't know. That's, that's happened more than once, so uh, pattern detected. Um, they talked about the hospital. And it says there's a close relationship between hospitals and child welfare agencies. In cases of child abuse, teams of pediatricians judge how children likely came to be injured. They also assess cases of medical neglect in which parents may be found not to have attained needed medical care for their children. Hospitals, and particularly public hospitals, which non-white people are more likely to go to, are a key entry point into the child welfare system in another way. They choose which mothers get drug tested at the birth of their children, and if those tests are positive, they can report the mothers, at least in Texas, for physical abuse. Now, I think this discretion gives the people who work at the hospitals, um, it's, a, it's like a large way, a large part of the way that racism gets practiced. Now, Tammy um herself is not classified as non-white, but those children were. And it made me think of Nurse Brown from Dorothy Roberts killing the black body. Um, you know, she, all black people and the one white woman she drug tested and she had a black offspring as well. Um, let's see. It said Colorado County not only removed Tammy's children, but also charged her with child endangerment. The indictment says that she did intentionally, knowingly, recklessly, or with criminal negligence engage in conduct by omission that placed Hannah Holiday Shurick, a child younger than 15 years of age, in imminent danger of death, bodily injury, or physical or mental impairment by failing to seek medical treatment for her. Now, this is after the invite. I actually don't think that part was true. It seemed like she tried to get Hannah medical care. She just didn't have a lot of options or a cost. Um, uh, she did say she wouldn't take her to one hospital. She wanted to take her to the other. The reasoning on that, I don't know. It didn't seem like the best reasoning, but it did seem like she tried to get her some care. Um, it said also, Tammy read in news stories that Marcus and Hannah seemed to get the worst of Jennifer's rage. Why, she wondered. Why was Hannah so small? When she first saw their photos in the news stories, 
She thought Hannah must have been Abigail. She was never small like that, she says. She has hatred for Jennifer and Sarah, sure, but they are already dead. It's Sharon, she thinks, who really deserves to suffer, and that was the white woman caseworker. And that I think that's a contrast. Because, um, well, I, I'm asking the question, did the author include anything about the black attempted family feeling rage towards white people? I don't remember that. Um, I remember sadness, denial, blocking things out, praying, and things of that sort. Um, so that's a distinct contrast. Um, I also wonder why Tammy sent her baby John to live with a man whom she said molested her. And I also noticed she didn't send that the second baby, I guess, which would have been the fifth baby, um, to live with him. She, you know, sent him somewhere else. Um, the part about Marcus knocking over the milk and then, you know, dipping the milk in the cup, cookie and saying, fix it. And Tammy says, those are my memories and they're all I have. That was another story that made the reader feel really sorry for Tammy. Um, the description, you know, the tattoo, the missing teeth, the eyes, the smoky voice. Um, I thought the description of Tammy sounded really trashy. You know, maybe she tried to fix it up, um, but she just sounded really trashy to me. And I also, you know, the behavior, um, her and Rob, this new husband with all of the abuse. Mm, I don't know. But I don't know if first time, last time applies to white people. Um, but I certainly think um, all of that was incorrect. And this fear of being alone, um, we're all alone. And it's probably best that we're honest about that. Um, that's all I have. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, uh, Lauren. Uh, I'm thinking of the comparison with the social worker. Uh, well, I guess one difference I've not been able to confirm with Sharon Kirby, and I don't think she stated specifically. I have to go back to double check that she, Sharon Kirby, is white. But the social worker who removed Devante, Dante and Sierra black female so that's a slight difference I mean I guess they could be upset at the caseworker but they would be fussing at a black female directly for coming and doing the removal of them however there was the scene where Sherry and her friend Patricia sit down they're talking and upset but they're not upset at the social worker. They're upset at Judge Sheldon, who you'd already mentioned uh, about the financial scheme of it all, or had already been mentioned on the program. Uh, but they're upset at him. That was when Patricia said that uh, this is a white man, and he came and snatched everybody out. They, they were very detailed, and then calling out that he is white. Uh, and while all of this was done, they seemed very upset uh, about all of that, uh, and even pointing out the racial aspect of it. So they were upset about the judge. Uh, but not the social worker who was black for Sherry and Dante and all of them. So that'd be a slight difference in, you know, response of all of that. Um, or I guess anger directed differently. Judge, social worker. Uh, let's see. Other folks who, if you all have commentary, 
star six one uh, and or email until justice at gmail dot com. I'll nab a few of my comments and then see if other folks have thoughts they want to share. We'll give them the rest of our emails as well. Uh, let's see. The beginning of chapter thirteen. This is another one in terms of chapter title that's in quotes. And I said that since I've seen this a number of times now, this is uh, one, two, three, four, five, uh, five, six times we have read a chapter where the chapter title is a direct quote from one of the people in the book. Uh, that's why I said that is so important. It should have been in quotes, chapter seven, playing the food card, because that again, in my view, shows the deliberateness of all of this. This was a, this is not insanity. Why would you say something like that? Suggesting that black people are never to be believed. They just make up things and lie, lie and say that white people are being racist, lie and say that white people are starving them. That's not insanity. If it is, what disease is that? Anyway, uh, so chapter 13, something I could love unconditionally. Uh, let's see. All of this uh, Ingleside Church of Christ reminded me of Columbine a little bit, but they were evangelicals. Remember all the evangelical Christians up in the Columbine area and, and the same sexual perversion. I uh, remember the daughter, she was going to kill her parents. Uh, she was one of the victims. She was going to kill her parents and was into all the Satanism and everything else. And then John Benet Ramsey was right down the road from all that about 40 minutes. Reminded me of Columbine a little bit. Anyway, um, not reporting the sexual abuse. Right? It's about the white people do not care about children. Uh, let's see. The oh man, major comparison. She says, uh, and this is uh, as Garyan. She writes that Tammy didn't want to go to school. Couldn't hang. She says this repeatedly. Uh, she just didn't. She hadn't learned much of anything. Um, she it was a waste of time. The other children picked on her and such, and called her chubby and all of this. So she just, you know, quit school. Okay, we heard all that with Dante, blah, blah, blah. If that's true, she didn't learn anything, she didn't spend any time there, there's no way she can have polished, grammatically correct English. In fact, where are the Texasisms, or Texanisms, that's how you say it, where are the Texanisms? That would have been, because I could have learned something, like, what is that? Like, give me some of these, you know, colloquial sayings that Tammy is so well versed in we didn't get any of that and she cleans up all of her grammar we don't get any slang we don't get any misspellings none of that it's all perfect and Tammy cannot sound like this that is not possible and that's I mean why you put that whole letter in from Dante we didn't need that nothing in that letter tells us anything about why these children went off the cliff now if you want to talk to us give us some deep hey that part from the documentary where Dante says when my brothers and sister died I wondered where God was 
That's one you could have put in the book. You could have even made that a chapter title. We talked about it. Is God a white racist? You would have to think about that, given what happens on the plantation to dark people. That doesn't go on. We just get this lame letter where he can't spell in, in the whole letter, every word, every syllable of it. Tammy, everything is clean. I have to give some of the specific sentences where she's quoting or she's got it in quotes. And I'm submitting that that has got to be a lot. There is no way we can have all these different quotes from Tammy and her grammar and diction is that here we go. Okay. So she says, but for Tammy, the distinction was not so sharp. She started having sex at age 11 in part so that she could get pregnant in quotes. I just figured if I could be a mama, there had to be something I could love unconditionally that they would love me unconditionally and the world would be beautiful. Wow. And you never went to school? That that could be on a, a Hallmark greeting card. Now, I mean, maybe you can pitch one of these, you know, from time to time. Maybe. But if what we've heard is true and all this chaos and molestation and everything else and grief and substance abuse, come on, man. I'm submitting. You can clean up Tammy's grammar so that she can sound a little bit better, like she at least finished an English class or two. You could do the same thing for Diane, and particularly double down because then you had to tell us that Nathaniel Davis. Oh my God, I can't even understand what he heard. You heard him in the beginning. He was in the audio. That was why I played a little extra so we could hear. You got to hear what he sounds like. We got to make sure that we know. Now, oh my God, I can't even understand Nathaniel Davis. Oh. He's just mumbling and Negro Ebonics on top of it. And oh, oh, oh. if you're going to be that detailed about it with them, then eh, man, she doesn't even have a lisp. <laughs> she doesn't even have her teeth. Come on, come on. Uh, let's see. The uh, Waco Center for Youth reminded me of the lynching of Jesse Washington uh, in early uh, 20th century uh, Waco, Texas, way before we got to David Koresh. Uh, let's see. Avoiding school can be grounds for getting you kicked out of the house uh, as well. Uh, let's see. I think I'd said that last week about the children being classified as non-white. I think I'd asked that question like, dang, if Tammy had been having sexual intercourse with a white men and producing these children, Marquise, Abigail, and Hannah, they're all classified as white. Maybe they don't get removed. Said that last week. I'm very aware. Yes, they do remove white children from the home. Not at the same rate as they remove black children. Maybe. Just saying. Um, and then particularly here in the hospital and all that, that it was Marquise got this lanky, dark, non-white male running around and ah, scaring white women. <laughs> Man, it's, I told you that was on the list. That was on the list for lynching. Scaring white women like, oh, we, ooh, ooh, he might be biracial, but you're dark enough that these white ladies do not like you running up and down the hallway being active and hyper close to puberty. She says... 
The relationship between inability to pay fines and incarceration is well documented. Many jurisdictions around the country re- rely on punitive fines and additional court fees to help fund their court systems. Ferguson is largely ineffective as an analysis by New York University's, University's Brennan Center for Justice found because the cost of jailing those unable to pay is so exorbitant. I would pause there to submit it's probably a lot of white people at New York University's Brennan Center for Justice. That would be my suspicion that they put this report together and it was written mostly for other white people. It's certainly not Dante who's reading it. It's not Nathaniel Turner, excuse me, Nathaniel Davis who's reading it. It continues. Uh, It also leads to jailing people for being poor. Middle class people can pay fines and fees easily while to those who are on a fixed income likely Tammy, let alone $1,266 in amount that's impossible to raise. I think that was pointed out. People classified as white will have a much easier time getting access to pay these fines. That's real. And that's Dorothy Roberts talks about that explicitly. Those are the people. Yes, you will have some white sacrifice like Tammy, but I mean, really, it is the dark people who are going to be hit with these. And in fact, they have data. I'm pretty sure. I guess don't quote me on this and I have to double check, but I'm pretty sure they have data that they tend to be more punitive discretion even in areas with more non-white people. They will have the child protective services and such because it can vary regionally. They will be more punitive in areas where they have a higher concentration of dark people. I know social services works like that, and I know they have data on that. NPR played that, so that's right there with uh, child protective services. Why would it be different? Uh, Let's see. The whole uh, black family in Texas, I think other people rightly said that they were suspicious, uh, as was I, about why all of this, you know, so-called fell apart. Now, it even could be what they said that would even still be white supremacy racism if something happened uh, if one of the the two parents lost a job or something happened with one of their children or some other component of white supremacy this isn't that far from Jasper, Texas who knows but I am suspicious and they have names of these folks I would love to man I would love to hear from them after all of this like wow you had them do you have any pictures of what they looked like like did they talk about their former situation did you think that <laughs> the uh tammy and and the the biological white family were racist do you have any problems issues anything like that i would let what did you you know think when you heard all of this were you thinking dang you know we could have had them here and they'd still be alive is that true were you all having some sort of problems or you know, was it something else why the adoption failed? I would just, I would have lots of questions. Even how long did it take? Like when you all were thinking about this and this was potentially going to happen, how much time was that? And then how much time did it take for the hearts who are in a totally different state? How much time did it take for them to get there? And then let's do a comparison. Let's see. The... When she says, so this is the biological white mom saying when she first saw the photos of her children after the after they were killed, uh, she thought Hannah must have been Abigail. She was never small like that. She says she has hatred for Jennifer and Sarah. Sure, but they are already dead. It's Sharon, she thinks, who really deserved to suffer. Now, that's interesting because I don't remember hearing 
any of the black people saying that they hated Jennifer and Sarah. I have to go back and think on that one. I definitely remember the judge. I'm <laughs> calling him out the white judge. And I think he'd even, you know, seems like he took all the children on the block from the black people. So definitely the judge. But, hmm, Jennifer and Sarah, did they not hate for them? That I have to go back. Listeners can, you know, let me know if you all remember that too. But I don't, I don't remember them talking about hating Jennifer or Sarah. I have to go back and look for that. Uh, and then they, redirect their dead so they redirect to Sharon Kirby who again I do not know if Sharon Kirby is classified as white that would be because I would probably feel a little different about this if it turns out that Sharon if both of the caseworkers on this case were classified as black I would feel some type of way about this like if we're going to get this long juicy spiel about how this white woman hates this black female caseworker I would love if she did say that Miss Kirby is white they can bang where is that at all the good stuff that's what another one like especially for this is all about racism you're sitting here talking about biracial children and the biological white parents don't like black people or I don't even know said they're racist didn't give any details on what that means but um, yeah like what what are the details about what exactly that's supposed to mean we don't hear any of that from uh, the text Um, yeah I just I'd be curious to know and just looking at the contrast of it all. Distracted. Sorry, if anybody, if you can locate it, that if I just missed it, if I was doing a poor job of paying attention where they actually do cite that uh, the caseworker is a white, because I think that's important. Like, like, uh, I don't think she I don't think she told us that the first case worker is classified as a black female but I looked independently as we were talking because I did think that that was an important part of the narrative um, and I think I explained it way back then when I found out that the case worker who removed Dante and all of it and it was the same thing right that the case worker lied about what was happening until I think that was how Lauren said that she uh, saw the pattern where they told Dante that oh no no I'm not going to remove you and then bang she I think the same day same type of thing <laughs> comes back the same day and takes them out of the home. So, yeah, if someone, if they can do the same thing, maybe if they can look and see if Miss Kirby, if that is a white woman, non-white female, what the deal is, that would be good to know. Perhaps, let's see. Let's see. Okay. I love, this is one of my favorite low-key sentences in the book. She says that... On Abigail's second birthday, after 2005, Jennifer Sarah came down to Houston to meet Marquise. Uh, this meeting is when Jennifer first held baby Abigail, later posting on Facebook. See, that's what I mean. Like, don't be telling me that you, you know, got this problem and that black people went on social media and saying that these rappers are racist and all that. Man, pff, the queens of lies and propaganda on social media Jessica and oh excuse me Jennifer and Sarah are right there like from the beginning like way back I mean Jesus that's like the infancy of Facebook they didn't have no Facebook live stream or none of that and they go on and are posting uh, the false the hearts still had their foster daughter Bree at home but by March 2006 Bree had been sent packing and the hearts moved their new kids to Minnesota I love that sentence just reinforcing what we said like they totally like get the step in <laughs> they made totally deliberate choices the whole way through with all of this this was not 
uh, they went insane or crazy or they didn't have support. No, but I even submitted from the very beginning, like this could have been willful and deliberate from the very beginning. We want to kill some non-white children. Bree, get out of here. We got other plans. I could be totally wrong on that, but white people do plan killings sometimes with a lot of detail. Let's see. Again, I wish more details uh, if we're going to know, you know, how many teeth she's missing and all of that. When you say that the grandpa or excuse me, got to expand a little bit. When you say that they were racist at times, the whole family, what behaviors, what did they say things? Did they do things? Were they in the clan? Like what? Come on, man. Like that is absurd. And in this story, man, I said racism should be in the title. Hannah goes over to the DeCabs and says they're racist, man. Even that, like, what do you mean? That even on the DeCabs, man, like, what do you mean? Are they calling you all racist names or are they in the clan? <laughs> like, what do you mean? What are they doing specifically? Even I would ask that. I wouldn't be. It's not even that I'm confused. Like, what's your definition of race? Like, no, no, no. What are they doing specifically for you to say that they're racist? Both ways. Even Tammy. What are they doing? They mad because you're sleeping with these niggers? Do they say nigra? They tell Obama jokes? What? What? Tell me. You as a giant, you as a journalist, you shouldn't, what? Are we supposed to know what that means? They got Trump paraphernalia, break it down for me. My man Dante eating raw pork chops, but we can't get it. These folks are a bit racist at times. <laughs> and that's all we're going to get. She says, uh, let's see. Oh, man, the whole part about the cookies. I think Lauren touched on that eloquently. Like, oh, my God, there is so much humanity. We get back to that old goofy love again in the chapter, unconditional love. And I just wanted to love and unconditional love. And I don't know what none of that may replace white supremacy with love. We don't have love. We got white terrorism and plenty of it. But this whole scene, man, like, I don't remember. Sherry. Uh, Nathaniel uh, Davis I don't remember any of the black people like just really you know beautiful stories like this so we just you know we're chilling and having a good time it was not chaos and we don't have to hear about you know uh, Sherry's terrible upbringing and black people killing each other in front of the offspring and all of this like, I just don't remember that now if I forgot my bad I'll go back and look I just don't remember uh, a cute little and I'm like oh that maternal instinct oh anyway uh, and over milk no less like that's the symbolism the whiteness of milk uh, and cookies are right there at Valentine's Day there's got to be some chocolate uh, let's see uh, the whole Tammy has a weather-worn reddish tan face with a bumblebee tattoo on her cheek, uh, piercing blue-green. Eyes are piercing blue-green. They always, the emphasis, even that alone, like, that means a lot to white people. Like, that's almost like blonde hair. Like, she's not blonde. She's got those blue eyes. Like, oh, 
white woman. Mm. And her smoky voice is peppered with Texas and Texanisms. Again, what? <laughs> What is that, man? We, I know we got Mo in Dallas and people who live in the Texas area. I've been to Texas, man. I've been to Galleria Mall in Houston, right on to the Astros. I've done all that, but I don't know. If you called me on it, million dollars, Gus, give me a Texanism. I'm about to be short. I couldn't even guess at one. Anybody here know a Texanism? We could have learned something. See? Details. We got raw pork chops, remember, with Dante. Uh, and that's what I mean, too, about cleaning it up, because I, I know all white people do not speak with polished kings and queens English. Get out of here. Uh, let's see. Oh, and the, her no count drinking, violent, abusive partner, Rob, who I also said last week, I think he's racist, too. Why you say that, Gus? I said last week because Rob is the dude who said, hey. I don't hear nothing about these dark children going off the cliff with these white lesbians. Shut up. She told us last week, she said that uh, Tammy would have to sneak and tell her the details and talk to her after Rob left. Said, I can't talk. I have to wait till he leaves. Then I can sneak and, you know, be incognito. Why is all that? I think he's racist too, but we didn't get those details as to why. Yeah, but he's charming. That even that word is nobody tells me I'm charming. And I don't say that I am, I'm just saying nobody says that. Mike Swango is charming. Rob they said Rob got PTSD? Abusive? On narcotics? Might even be racist. Eh, times he's charming. <laughs> Man, what they don't say they don't even say, you know, occasion, you know, once every other year that Gus T for about five seconds, he be pretty charming. No, no. <laughs> at all. Anywho, um whew, I think that's most of my notes for uh chapter fourteen. I cannot emphasize enough, uh ponder on that, uh the difference in how though because we got a whole chapter on Tammy, right, and her white family difference in how we heard the description of the black biological family and Dante and then what we heard with Tammy this week and then overall if this had been two non-white people especially two people classified as black gone off the cliff even how would this what would be different about how this book got put together we were once a family In fact, before we get to, I submit, this book might not exist. It certainly would not be no title, We Were Once a Family, if two Negroes had gone off a cliff with six non-white children, much less if it had been six white children. No, I don't think this book would exist. It certainly would be called something drastically different. Anywho, uh, if you have thoughts, Texanisms, you want to share with us please let us know I would like to learn write it down we'll get to audio segment number two and this one did you know these children were drugged before they went off the cliff we are about to find out Catherine Massey book club context of white supremacy audio segment number two 14 Death at the Hands of Another 
The investigation into the Hart's fatal plunge involved an intricate web of law enforcement and social service agencies spanning the states where the family lived. But Mendocino County is where the family died, and the sheriff's office there had taken the lead in notifying the public of developments in the case. At regular intervals since the crash, the department had been speaking to the public and putting out press releases. The news they announced regarding the identification of Hannah before Tammy was notified herself was in one of these releases. Mendocino County Sheriff Tom Allman was the public face of the investigation, a law enforcement lifer with more than 30 years rising in the ranks in various departments around California, and even a brief term as a United Nations Blue Beret in Kosovo, Allman clearly loved holding the microphone in a high-profile case. He said the deaths of the Hart family constituted the largest mass murder in our county in modern times. In early 2019, Allman told a reporter that he was convening a public inquest into the deaths of the Hearts. It was clear from Allman's interview that the inquest was to be a finale of sorts to the case. He told the reporter that the evidence his office had collected would likely shock the consciousness of those who had been following along. This is the first coroner's inquest we've had in this county in at least 50 years that I know of, he said. Inquests in major cases are rare these days, so much so that Allman felt the need to explain the procedure to the press. Typically, led by a coroner, the practice began centuries ago in England to help ascertain a cause of death in a suspicious or sudden case. An inquest is not a criminal case, so there are no convictions. Rather, a jury gathers to hear the evidence unearthed in the investigation and makes a ruling as to the cause of death. It's not adversarial, and therefore the rules are looser. Witnesses are allowed to testify to hearsay or things they did not experience directly, and there's no cross-examination of the witnesses. In a case like that of the Hearts, which was suspicious and had generated a lot of interest, but in which there were no survivors, it was, Allman said, the closest thing to a final legal result. And it will be the result of one of three things. One, a terrible accident. Two, a homicidal driver, Allman said. Or three, a Thelma and Louise situation where two mothers felt that the pressures of life had gotten too great and they decided to take their own lives and the lives of their children. Thelma and Louise, the 1991 movie starring Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, is about two friends on a road trip who end up killing a man after he attacks one of them in an attempted rape. Regarded as a feminist classic, the film ends when the two women hold hands and drive their sparkly blue Thunderbird convertible off a cliff rather than be apprehended by the police. There are no children in the back seat in Thelma and Louise. The movie's final scene depicts a suicide, not a murder. Allman's allusion to the movie was more in line with Jennifer's understanding of herself as an unfairly hounded mother than with the actual facts of the case. The police narrative, it seemed, was one of two well-meaning women who succumbed to great outside pressures driving them to end their families' lives. That narrative would be one of several reactions the family's death provoked in the viral responses to the case. In some ways, this was the perfect tabloid crime. Innocent children, mean mommies, harrowing and unusual deaths. 
True crime aficionados were especially drawn to the case by the underlying psychological question, what kind of woman could do this to her family? The Hart family's story got the true crime treatment before the inquest even took place. Glamour Magazine, in conjunction with the website How Stuff Works, released an eight-part podcast, Broken Hearts, delving into the Hart family's life and particularly focusing on Jennifer. I am a mother of a two-year-old. I can't imagine ever being pushed to the brink that way. But at the same time, it is a relatable feeling as a mother, as a woman, to feel trapped by the choices you make, the podcast host Justine Harmon says in the first episode. In a later episode, Harmon does a thought experiment, again involving her young child. Sometimes, when I tuck my two-year-old in at night, he gives me this look like, I'm going to get out of this bed. And I give him another one that says, don't you dare. And he doesn't. He doesn't dare, Harmon says. What a strange influence to have over another person. But what if I pushed it a little further? What if I told him that something bad would happen to him if he got out of bed? What if, and this is honestly hard for me to say out loud, what if I held him down until it hurt? The podcast asks listeners to empathize, but with whom? Broken Hearts includes very little information about the children's birth families and no information at all about the children's mothers, Sherry Davis and Tammy Shurick other than to note that Sherry is a cocaine user. But it does ask the listener to imagine what it might feel like to hurt their own child. True crime and stressed parent themes were not the only ones to circulate. The case touched a nerve for some transracial adoptees who saw the tension between the children's performance of happiness and the brutal treatment described in the abuse allegations made against the mothers. Black people, and especially black mothers, saw the racism steeped into the interactions between the children and those who could help them, and the self-congratulatory tone of Jennifer's public persona was particularly grating to them. The myriad Facebook groups that popped up, like the ones Tammy joined, typified the range of responses to the story. The groups had thousands of members, and they shared theories and questions about minute details of the case— but exchanges quickly became heated as opinions clashed. Black women in the group highlighting the racism the children experienced were sometimes silenced, with their posts being removed and their ability to comment on some controversial posts getting turned off by the moderators. After I wrote my first story about Sherry Davis and Clarence Celestine in April 2018, people in some of the groups found Sherry's Facebook profile and started posting screenshots of her page that showed her daily life in South Lawn. Many of the posts showed her in a negative light. Looks like she would have made a fabulous mom, one woman commented sarcastically after posting the screenshots. Some posters pushed back, calling the doxing of Sherry racist. In response, others expressed their frustration at receiving pushback. Just wondering who is the voice for these women? One lady wrote of Jennifer and Sarah in one of the groups. I am an adoptive mom, and I feel like they need a voice. When I joined this group, it was because I was heartbroken about what happened to these kids and wanted to know more. What I never expected was the amount of hate that is posted here. Not hate only toward the heart moms, but hate toward all white people, foster parents, adoptive parents, lesbians, another woman wrote in a different group. 
Saying that a white person shouldn't adopt children of color is like saying a gay person shouldn't adopt a straight child. It's ridiculous and pretty damn racist. The groups splintered, with some focusing on the harms of racism and posting other stories of abuse by adoptive parents, and others trying to maintain a tone of kindness that resulted in more tightly controlling critical posts. When Tammy revealed herself publicly in one of the Facebook groups, she elicited kinder discussion than Sherry, leading to more accusations of racism. After members raised several hundred dollars for luggage and a bus ticket for Tammy to return to Houston, others noted that Sherry had been pilloried in the same group. Afterward, the moderator, the same one who later fell out with Tammy, posted to the group that after some reflection, I have felt convicted about some things that have taken place in this group, things that may have looked like I was treating Sherry and Tammy differently. She added, I do not normally delete posts or comments, but I feel it's time to stand up for Sherry the same way we have for Tammy. There were also elements of homophobia in some accounts of the murder-suicide. Multiple news accounts of the crime led with lesbian mothers or woke moms in the headline. One opinion piece in a small-town Mississippi paper went further, using the tragedy to make clear the writer's belief that same-sex couples should not raise kids at all. In the piece, titled Far-Reaching Ramifications of Same-Sex Marriage and Adoption, Harvey Warren writes that when kids are adopted by same-sex couples, they decline in socializing in the general public due to taunts, labels, insults, dehumanizing attacks, and ostracizing by other children, in some cases instigated by heterosexual parents. These horrible things were happening to the six black children driven off of the cliff in California, where deviancy veered off the course of nature. Some criticisms of the hearts were much more well-informed. Nancy Polikoff, a law professor and author of Beyond Straight and Gay Marriage, Valuing All Families Under the Law, has spent much of her career looking at how family law fails LGBTQ families. In a blog post written after the crash titled, Yes, Jennifer and Sarah Hart Played the Lesbian Card, Polikoff, a lesbian herself, writes, at one time, Sarah and Jennifer Hart might have been the poster couple for same-sex marriage, a white lesbian couple who adopted two black sibling groups out of foster care. LGBT advocacy groups would do well to remember that many of the children in foster care and available for adoption should not be there, that the state is too quick to remove children from economically disadvantaged mothers of color, some of them lesbian and bisexual mothers, and that the solution to the disproportionate number of black children in the foster care system is not more adoption by same-sex couples, but more resources to the families those children come from. But in the larger mainstream narrative of the case, it was as if Tammy and Sherry didn't exist at all. Many narratives focused on Jennifer as the ringleader, and cast Sarah as potentially another victim, although the evidence for this view is minimal. By hyper-individualizing the story, making it about one woman with dark psychological problems, the media largely let the state systems that failed the birth mothers off the hook. It let listeners and readers off the hook, too, free to enjoy the wacky and bizarre tale without thinking of how it came to occur. The larger media narrative would set the tone for the public inquest itself. 
The inquest, which took place over two full days in a county building, was led by an attorney named Matthew Guichard, an older gentleman with a tanned face and white hair, who was given two long-winded explanations at each stage of the process. Reporters were in attendance, but none of Sarah's or Jennifer's family members or the birth families were present. The entire procedure was live-streamed on YouTube, and some family members chose to watch from home. The point was to ascertain the official cause of the death of the family. Guichard called a number of law enforcement officers as well as a search party coordinator and the doctor who performed the autopsy and asked each a series of questions about the investigations they'd conducted. Allman wasn't wrong that the evidence was shocking. A theory had developed in the interim, fueled by observations made by friends of the family, that Sarah seemed to be following the lead of her wife, that Jennifer was the sole abuser, and that Sarah and the children were under her control. But testimony from Deputy Jake Slates of the California Highway Patrol complicated that theory. Slates testified that while the vehicle was in motion, en route to California from their home in Washington, Google searches on Sarah Hart's phone revealed a deadly plan forming. Can 500 milligrams of Benadryl kill a 120-pound woman? What over-the-counter medications can you take to overdose? How can I easily overdose on over-the-counter medications? Is death by drowning relatively painless? How long does it take to die from hypothermia in water while drowning in a car? What will happen while overdosing on Benadryl? One of Sarah's final searches was especially brutal. No-kill shelters for dogs. The autopsy of the children had revealed excessive amounts of diphenhydramine, the active ingredient in Benadryl, in their systems. Marcus had the equivalent of 19 doses in his body, Abigail, 14, and Jeremiah, 8. Sarah was found to have ingested 42 single doses of generic diphenhydramine. That doesn't mean that they took that number, Slates clarified. That's just the minimum number that they would have taken at that point. They could have been given more. This is just at the time of the autopsy when we drew the blood. Another investigator, Timothy Roloff, worked for California Highway Patrol's Multidisciplinary Accident Investigation Team, a unit that consists of a mechanic, an engineer with a physics background, and officers trained in accident reconstruction. He said there was no evidence that any of the family members had been wearing their seatbelts and that it was clear from the airbag deployment system that the Yukon had indeed accelerated off the cliff. The evidence was conclusive, and the jury returned the unanimous verdict after an hour of deliberation. Jennifer's and Sarah's deaths were ruled suicides, and the children's deaths were ruled death at the hands of another other than by accident. The facts were stark. Jennifer and Sarah had been investigated for abuse in three separate states. In Minnesota, Sarah was convicted for assaulting her daughter, Abigail. At the moment of crisis, when what would have been the third CPS investigation for the family was likely to commence, the women fled with the children, hatching a plan along the way. Sarah would ingest massive amounts of diphenhydramine and give overdoses of the medication to each of the children. Jennifer, purportedly a non-drinker, would imbibe alcohol and drive her family off a rocky cliff. 
When it comes to deeper causes, the police's narrative of the murder-suicide would hew to Allman's initial storytelling about women who were overwhelmed with pressures. That narrative would be echoed by several other law enforcement officers who testified at the inquest. Lieutenant Shannon Barney, the Mendocino County officer who authored the press release about Hannah's remains, gave this assessment of the case. In my opinion, based on the total circumstances, you know, it is my belief that both Jennifer and Sarah succumbed to a lot of pressure. We may never know exactly what all those pressures were. I know they got a lot of pressure from the photograph. They had some family pressures, not necessarily negative, but just a lot of stuff going on in their lives, you know, to the point that they got to the point where they made this conscious decision to end their lives this way and take the children with them. It's quite likely, of course, that two women raising six adopted kids would feel myriad pressures. What wasn't clearly defined in these accounts is why those pressures, not necessarily negative pressures, would lead them to end their lives and murder their children. Not once in the inquest was the word murder used. In fact, the witnesses seemed to be taking great pains to be sensitive to the families, Jennifer's and Sarah's families, that is. Nothing was said about any of the birth families, save for Tammy, whose role in submitting her DNA sample was reduced to a passive one in Barney's telling. We worked with the Mobile, Alabama Police Department Detective Unit, and they were able to go out and contact this individual who agreed to give us a DNA sample, Barney said, which led to the positive identification of Hannah's remains. Even the phrasing of the inquest verdicts seems to obscure the facts of the children's deaths. Death at the hands of another, other than by accident, is a legal term, one of four potential outcomes a California inquest can have, but it's reminiscent of the euphemism used to describe murders of civilians by police officers, which are often referred to as officer-involved shootings. What is drugging your family and driving them off a cliff, if not murder? One reason people showed an unusual amount of empathy for Jen and Sarah, the perpetrators of a murder-suicide, could be that they did not fit the typical profile of the people who carry out such acts. In-depth statistics on murder-suicide rates in the United States don't exist, but a six-month analysis of news reports by the Violence Policy Center revealed that during half of 2019, more than 10 murder-suicides took place each week. 90% of the perpetrators were men, 90% of the incidents involved a firearm, 65% involved intimate partner violence, and 81% occurred at home. Family annihilators, who murder multiple members of their family, are nearly always men who have exhibited a pattern of abuse against their partner and family. The kid gloves treatment of the women during the official proceedings of the inquest, which included multiple mentions of the family's stress, extended the mainstream narrative of the case with all its blind spots. Even those media outlets that portrayed the women darkly provided little serious discussion of the child welfare system itself, even though official decisions had a hand in the children's lives at every single step of the way. It's possible that a major reason the Hearts escaped accountability for so long and the children were not saved is that many people, both inside and outside the child welfare system, held a common assumption that these six black children must be better off with the white women who adopted them 
that whatever issues they were having as a family must have been an improvement for the children over the poor conditions of their early childhood homes. These women look normal, the Minnesota caseworker had told the caseworker in Oregon. This assumption was pushed forward by Jen herself in the lurid descriptions she gave of the children's pasts and in the accounts of their disturbing behavior she shared when they came to live with her and Sarah. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, the Thelma and Louise version of events in which the women were driven to the brink, literally by the partially unnamed, not necessarily negative pressures of their lives, seemed to be the official version. As the record now shows, the deaths of Marcus, Hannah, Abigail, Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra were at the hands of another other than by accident. Griffin, context of white supremacy. We will wrap it all up next week. Best interests of the child, chapter 15, and be done with We Were Once a Family. We actually heard the same song twice for all five of the first installments on this book uh, using music to help make some of the points long way from home man Texas to go die off a cliff 
in Northern California. It's about 2,000 miles. Long way from home. No such thing as home in a system of white supremacy racism, but 2,000 miles to go off the cliff. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate like I said did you know these children had been drugged I'm not sure I was aware of that again now this happened in 2018 so I could have easily forgotten six years could be uh, but I'm not sure I was aware it seems like that would be something I would lead with more frequently you know that they were drug they didn't just kill them they did the whole swango <laughs> like woo. in fact if I had I think if I had known that I would have probably been making the swango connection like way earlier I would not have waited to this one like oh man wow look at the all of the similarities because uh, I, I yeah I did not know the swango connection on this at all so I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I did not know they had drugged these children which is huge because I mean wow really they went insane so they had to drug and even in fact the people who said dang Marquise was 19 at the time he was killed and at least he was kind of tall now he also looked emaciated but at least he looked kind of tall why didn't he resist why didn't he fight back he had 19 times the dosage of this I think was Benadryl in his system 19 I guess they gave him one for each year he'd been on the planet and it could have been more they said that too because that's just what was in his bloodstream at the time they did the autopsy so he could have been given more I mean how many pills were in the bottle or box whatever it is I don't take Benadryl so but I mean dang they gave him a whole box that might explain why he didn't fight back I don't that almost seems like something you need to know like in the beginning like Jesus Christ <laughs> and I'm processing and thinking about all this like what? I could, yeah I did not know that because yeah that would greatly impact how I would think about this like whoa 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 the people you're caping for they did the they did the Bill Cosby putting the quaaludes in six children Mm. Mm. that would be the lead really that would be then we can get into the foster care and how this happened oh yeah they starved them sexual and oh yeah yes lesbians yeah all that but they drugged the children before doing this wow swango number six hey 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 they could have just drugged the children and left them in the bed, right? I would prefer that. Hey, real talk. If I if it ever gets to that point, I get bitten by a zombie. This sort of some sort of apocalyptic vegan infection, and I get the double whammy dose of it. I said, oh man, Gusty, we ain't got no anecdote. We ain't got no elixir. We ain't doing no you know campaigns for you to go to the Swedish medical hospital and and get fixed it looks like you you are not going to see 2025 
you're going to be in lots of pain. And so it's like, whoa, man, do not, you know, let me be, get me in a bed, man, get me some morphine, like Jesus Christ, like you got to kill or what? Hey, you, you raped a white woman. You're going to get the death penalty. Okay. Dang. Dang. Now, how do you want to go? We can give you the injection, be in your bed, go out of here easy, but you're going out of here, rapist. You're going out of here. Or, <laughs> we, or look here, we inject you and then we're going to throw you off the cliff. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why I got to get the double whammy? Why I get, man, they got books, y'all. I don't really don't go first, but I mean, Jesus Christ. I didn't know. I did not. I knew like before we got to today, I knew because the drugging part is in the film. So I knew once we started reading the book, but I didn't know before we started reading the book. Anyway, and then I deliberately didn't say anything about that because I knew that part was coming. Anyway, flipping. (laughs) Why does they have books that in racist cinema, black people don't just get killed? black people it's it's that sort of thing exact that's in flipping planet of the apes the black person you got to get shot the gorilla has got to come and stomp on your testicles and bash in your skull and then we throw you in the helicopter and the helicopter goes off a cliff and drops 500 feet and explodes that's what it's coming <laughs> like it can't just be one bullet boom i don't no 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 we got to kill you like three four and these are children man there's three non-white females in there. Not that it's any different than six males, but still. Little Hannah and Abigail, you got to get the double whammy on them? How about this? They can't find Devontae Hart's body still, at least for the family. We don't want them having to go out. Lauren told us about the incompetent search team. How about this? We'll make it easy. Put some blankets out on the beach. You already drugged them. Just put the bodies down at night. Nobody would have known. They can't say anything. They're drug. Boom, boom, boom. Put a note down. You know, sorry, little homies. You know, we we tried our best, man. We tried to be champions of racial reconciliation, but you shamed us and you mocked us, you homophobes and no count. And let me tell you a thing about, well, we don't have time to talk about Black Lives Matter, but boy, we, ooh. anyway, and then bang, you do your thumb on Louise and all. You could have done that. Same thing accomplished. We got all the bodies. You killed the nigger children and everybody can have a funeral and we got all the way. We don't have to go. And now we got Hannah's foot and all that old tackiness. Why? I say they planned all that from the biggest. That's why they dumped Bree. She said that's why they sent Bree packing. This was the plan from the beginning. We're going to get these nigra children. That's how we are going to do our splash. Ooh, they'll make documentaries and all that. And, never mind. The number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I'm completing email number two, chapter 14. Sheriff Tom Allman was the public face of the investigation 2019. It will be the result of one of three things. One, a terrible accident. Two, a homicidal driver. Three, a Thelma and Louise situation. I had already mentioned that movie. I didn't know it was going to be mentioned in the film. Uh, comparing this to a fictional movie seems very incorrect. 
pressures of life who had any more pressure on them than the black birth parents facts I don't even know what that means the pressures of life and some of it was not even negative he said like you mean like the Huffington Post asking for more articles about your crack selling black babies that's pressure two Glamour magazine in conjunction with the website How Stuff Works released an eight part podcast Broken Hearts delving in delving it is relatable feeling as a mother the podcast host Justine Harmon white woman says in the first episode the podcast asks listeners to empathize but with who uh, this podcast became the documentary that we heard last week that actually does have more black people in it than the documentary that we heard this week uh, that is a thread of deceit the only people who can really expect empathy in the global system of racism white supremacy are classified as white that's what I mean too like do you really think Justine Harmon would she have made an eight part part podcast series that became a big hit and a documentary film would that have happened if uh, Jen and Sarah had been Leroy, Gus T, Lakeisha, Asada. And, and, and asking us to empathize with Leroy, Asada. Three. Tammy revealed herself publicly in one of the Facebook groups. She elicited kinder discussion than Sherry, leading to more accusations of racism. After members raised seven, see, there at least we get some details. They don't just say Sherry joined the group and people said it was racist. <laughs> like, why? Oh, okay. She got a different response. They gave money so that Tammy could get bus tickets and luggage or, you know, whatever, heroin. We don't know. Uh, after members raised several hundred dollars for luggage, bus tickets, heroin, who knows? What does it mean to be white? Hey. <laughs> Four. Nancy Polakoff, a law professor and author of Beyond Straight and Gay, Marriage, Faulting All Families Under the Law, The Lesbian Car, The Solution to the Disproportionate Number of Black Children in the Foster Care System is not more adoption by same-sex couples, but more resources to the families those children come from. The solution is a system of justice. Who needs the most help? gets the most constructive help. They're not doing that. They're not doing what uh, Polakoff said either. Five, when it came to deeper causes, the police's narrative of the murder-suicide would hew to Almond's initial storytelling about women. Even that word is interesting. Storytelling. Deception? Inaccuracy? Because, I mean, this is supposed to be accurate. You did an official inquest and all of that. Like, storytelling. Like, this is not bedtime we're not gather around Hannah and Abigail we're going to tell you about Peter Pan and Pinocchio and all the like no man they are not here for storytelling why is that let's get accurate and words are important which she touches on later but that's her word storytelling uh, about women who were overwhelmed with pressures Jennifer and Sarah succumbed to a lot of pressure again who was under any more pressure than those black parents trying to survive in a global system of racism white supremacy six death at the hands of another 
other than by accident is a legal term reminded me of death at the hands of persons unknown the lynchings of black america a book by philip trey who i believe was a guest on the cows in 2021 january we're still in the covid thicket seven violence policy i do want to say about well never mind, i get to it later um Violence Policy Center revealed that during half of 2019, more than 10 murder-suicides took place each week. 90% of the perpetrators were men. 90% of the incidents involved firearm. 65% involved intimate partner violence. And 81% occurred at home. Nearly always men who have exhibited a pattern of abuse against their partner and family. It would be nice to have the racial breakdown of these statistics. She didn't give it because we already know. What she's talking about right here, these murder suicides, that's Thelma and Louise, even though there's no murder there. But man, that's Reb Dill. We've heard that before, and I know who that is. I'm not saying it's never individuals classified as not white, but man, I know who that is, especially because we didn't get a racial breakdown. She's a journalist. I'm sure she spent years researching all this so she could have got that information. And beyond all that, the politics of white violence. When they said, what movie did they mention? Thelman Louise. Who is that that celebrated? Hmm. When they talk about this in real life, the exam. Reb. They're celebrated for this. That's why you have Miss Harmon. She knows the true crime community white people white people kill for fun uh, but it's white people uh, and, and the importance of this I don't focus on the gender aspect of the violence with white people I just focus on the whiteness of the violence politics of white violence white people kill for fun we don't say white men kill for fun we even brought this up when they talked about psychopaths because they did the same thing and saying that it's me at least there they did say white men <laughs> expand man. lucy let me expand expand white men and white women that immediately oh i've seen this behavior before you all brag about this behavior both ways thelma and louise Columbine, you brag about this behavior. We read a whole book about this behavior. Sue Klebold. I said that at the very beginning. Eight, these women look normal. The Minnesota caseworker had told the caseworker in Oregon, as stated in previous broadcast by callers, normal equals white. I remember that was a big one. The new American classic the hate you give which was published one year before they went off the cliff normal that word normal was in that book I believe 41 times and it was the exact same way white people at the black male like Devante black male gets killed and we want normal which is just like Devante normal is in the embrace of a white man let's see Folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, uh, retired firefighter in Florida, missed him first time around. If you have commentary, proceed. Yes, greetings. Can I be heard? We can't hear you. Did you know 
these children had been drugged before they went off the cliff? Uh, no, I didn't. But but uh, I, I'm not surprised, and it, and it really it really accelerates my thoughts on on these uh, two murderous white people. Uh, but I didn't know prior to you you stating it. I did not know, but I'm not surprised uh, because I've always looked at uh, this situation, and I'm, I'm sure it's others where white people in their in their attempts to mistreat non-white people are diabolical in their plotting and planning. And uh, for the most part, they have been wholeheartedly successful in what they're doing. So uh, they don't, they don't leave out no options uh, from my, from my point of view and understanding. But uh, in the two chapters, as far as my report is concerned, in the two, the two chapters, especially the first one, basically what I was listening to as I was following the reading, uh, and I'm going to put a critique on the author. Uh, basically, she racially trashed the uh, non-white uh, parental, attempted parental uh, aspect uh, earlier uh uh, in earlier uh, chapters uh, or didn't really put in any type of uh, explanations based on the uh, system of racist white supremacy, which I would do not take her off the list of, of being too dumb to understand it. I know she understands it, uh, but deliberately uh, did not uh, uh, put in the reasoning on how does a person get on crack cocaine and, and uh, you know, all of the, the, the uh, logical explanations on how people end up getting themselves in dire conditions, especially in the global system of racial white supremacy. I'm talking about the, the black mother of three of those children, uh, as opposed to with the white example, all oh, she opened up, she opened up a book on it on how that can take place or the, the, the rape, the rape situations that went on with her. And therefore from there, uh, she, uh, acted out by being aggressive sexually, uh, as a as a, as a, uh, young female. And it just kept growing in a negative way. You know, I mean, she could have wrote, she could have wrote books on that from, from, from the standpoint on how she was, uh, giving that to the, uh, to the white female. And uh, I mean, it was obvious. As dumb as I am, I, I know others saw it uh, in in the, in the readings of that earlier chapter. Uh, and in turn, you know, with the poisoning that you mentioned, you know, that that that, that doesn't that attribute to what is identified as first degree murder when you put when you when you you uh, poison your victim before you actively end their lives. <laughs> from my understanding, I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer in the case, from my understanding, that's, that, that is, that is uh, a planned objective. That's a planned objective. There's not no accident. So all of that, all of that back and forth by those white people on the, on the, on the uh, Facebook or whatever, uh, that sort of thing, that just the, the seemingly 
the seemingly uh, uh, making excuses for them. It's, it, it's not only irrelevant, it's, the, it's by those white people who are practicing racism and white supremacy by giving a, giving a way out for those white women killers. You know, and uh, so it's, it's, it's a good book in, in, in the light of, of understanding that white people know on what's correct. They know what they know what is correct and how they deliberately make decisions through, and in this case, a writer, uh, 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 through vocabulary, uh, twisting things to make it seem to make it seem like uh, uh, you know uh, this was love, and all of a sudden, because of their uh, sexual confusion. Uh, uh, from being tired of being uh, bothered about that situation uh, that uh, uh, we, we, we just can't take it anymore type of thing, you know, and uh, get out of here with all of that, you know, I mean, but it's, it's a good book from that standpoint to, 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 uh, for, for, for me anyway, to come up with the understanding of what she is actually writing about. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Hopefully, I made some sense. Hmm. Do you, uh, much obliged, retired firefighter? Quickly before we get to Lauren, do you think it's similar? Because she did give us some of the detail about uh, Sherry's upbringing, where I believe it was her mother who was shot and killed in front of her, and what a traumatic scene this was, and dad running the crawl, or yeah, mom's partner running across the street, and all of that, and how that had such a big impact uh, on her life. Do you think that's comparable to the way she detailed what happened with Tammy that would elicit some sympathy and help you explain how she got to her addiction? I would say comparable to the, the, the two examples uh, of Miss Sherry and the, the white ladies. She, she placed most of that. She placed most of that uh, compassion, uh, compassionate, uh, a scientific understanding to the white people. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, that, that's basically what, what, what I thought from, 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 uh, following, following the reading with the book. Uh, uh, that's how I got, that's what I got out of it is that she, she put most of that, that, that understanding, uh, from, from a, from a, a logical and a scientific standpoint with the white people, not the black mother. Much obliged, sir. Rose is Sherry's mother's name. And <clears throat> yeah, she gets shot and killed and all of that is at the And also the other the other black family members also they that wasn't brought out on how important that is to what makes up what's the makeup of a particular person that that has a you know, bad living situations. Uh uh from without and also that the person induces on them on themselves uh, Much obliged. We'll, uh, leave it there. She... we'll leave it there we'll leave it there thank okay. you i was talking thank you um rose is the mother's name who was shot and killed that led to all of the downfall for sherry uh lauren did you know that uh these children were drugged before they went off the cliff no i didn't know about that before i read this book Okay. Three of us. 
Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't amplify that enough in the media. Hmm. Much obliged. Um, well, okay. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I really don't have many notes on this section. Um, right at the beginning, when the Mendocino County Sheriff was talking, he said it was the largest mass murder in our county in modern times. And I thought he said country. I had to <laughs> go back and reread that. I was like, what is this white man talking about? Um, <clears throat> there are so many killings in this area of the world, mass murders. Um, but he did say county. When they started talking about the podcast, um, a white woman, well, first off, the podcast, it said it asked listeners to empathize but with whom Broken Hearts includes very little information about the children's birth families and no information at all about the children's mother, Sherry Davis and Tammy Shurick, other than to note that Sherry is a cocaine user. Um, then... I, I noticed um, the white lady's talking, and she says, sometimes when I tuck my two-year-old in at night, he gives me a look like I'm going to get out of this bed. And I give him another one that says, don't you dare, and he doesn't. He doesn't dare, Harmon says. What a strange influence to have over another person. But what if I pushed it a little further? What if I told him that something bad would happen to him if he got out of bed? What if, and this honestly is hard for me to say out loud, but what if I held him down until it hurt? Okay. Um, wow. That lady saying that, I, I'm not even sure what to make of it. And it just lets me know the type of thing that is going on in white people's minds. Um, uh, let me see. But in the, it, it said, but in the larger mainstream narrative of the case, it was as if Tammy and Sherry didn't exist at all. Many narratives focused on Jennifer as the ringleader and cast Sarah as potentially another victim, although the evidence for this view is minimal. By hyper-individualizing the story, making it about one woman with dark psychological problems. Um, that made me think about Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the way Eric Harris was made to seem like uh, the one who had all the ideas and Dylan Klebold was just another victim going along with Eric Um uh, the text also said that one of Sarah's final searches was especially brutal. No kill shelters for dogs. Now, they will kill six non-white black children, but they won't kill a dog. Now, that would be crazy. Um, let me see. I also noted, you know, I highlighted that evidence was conclusive and the jury returned the unanimous verdict after an hour of del deliberation. Jennifer's and Sarah's deaths were ruled suicides and the children's deaths were ruled death at the hands of another other than by accident. Man, white people so slick with the wording. I mean, death at the hands of another other by accident, other than by accident. So, um deliberate murder it's a really long way to say deliberate murder um not once in the inquest was the word murder used in fact the witnesses seem to be taking great pains to be sensitive to the families jennifer's and sarah's families that is <laughs> white people with the words mistreating our white people and, and and being um you know very cautious in the way that they treat 
other white people, no matter what they have done. Um, they talked about the unusual amount of empathy for Jen and Sarah. I don't think it is unusual to show empathy for white people who commit crimes. That is usual. That is common in a system of racism, white supremacy. Um, the kid gloves treatment of the women during the official proceedings of the inquest, which included multiple mentions of the family stress, extended the mainstream narrative of the case with all its blind spots. White people like to use terms like blind spot to talk about racist behavior, to talk about mistreatment, or maybe blinders, or the old classic, they're just ignorant, um, even in those media outlets that portrayed the women darkly provided little serious discussion of the child welfare system itself, even though official decisions had a hand in the children's lives at every single step of the way. I don't know. I just noted the term darkly, and I guess that implies that the two white women had done something incorrect or niggerish. Um, yeah, I, I think... That's all I have for now. Well, I did note um, that they said uh, these women look normal, but that I pointed that out the first time we read it in the book, and I also thought normal means white. Oh, oh, I had something to say about the last segment. When You know, when you brought up uh, Sherry and Patricia, although Sherry and Patricia brought up the judge and said he was a white man, they did not say anything about being – they were – they seemed hurt. They didn't talk about wage or that Judge Shelton should suffer. They didn't say anything like that. Um, Tammy didn't pay those fines, and I noticed that they said she had a fixed income. White people have fixed incomes. Non-white people are low income. Um, the other caseworker, the the female that Tammy was had the rage toward, I thought she was white. And I think the way it's been going in this book, when she doesn't just say the racial classification of everyone, but she does note when people are classified as non-white. She'll talk about that. But the white people, she doesn't really come out and say they're white. Um, let me see. And, yeah, I, I think I think that's all I have for now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Much obliged. That that is a wide, like globally wide pattern where people are just not identified as, especially around criminal activity. Oh man, they do not go in and make sure that we know this person is classified as white or this caseworker or blah blah blah. Now, I will say for this text, uh, the original caseworker, as I said, who removed Dante, Devante, all of his siblings. Um, she also was classified as a black person, but I don't think Asgarian told us that. I, I know she didn't because I had to dig. Like, it took me some searching and looking quite a few times online to find pages and pictures where it was a social worker in Texas and all the rest of it to confirm, like, okay, this is her black female. But, yeah, I think generally she does inform us more frequently about the non-white people's racial classification, if they're biracial or black or whatever it is. Uh, but not every time, especially with these social workers, she did not tell us, I think, on either one. So I'm still looking. Sharon Kirby, if anybody can find white female, non-white female, that's the one who did the removal, Tammy. 
Uh, we're wrapping the book up next week, so not a whole lot of time to think. Did you get to ponder on the statement that Sherry looked well put together with a mop of slick black curls on her head? Racist, yay or nay? What do you think, Lauren? I mean, I'm still sticking with my answer from last week. Not sure if it was racist, but it was not complimentary. Oh, she's doing the white person. I see there not answering the question. <laughs> I don't think even that was that difficult. Yay, nay, but alrighty. Um, incident- I don't know. That's what the white man is. is- she drove off the car. I don't know, man. Or they'll say it's not enough evidence to say. That's the one I'm saying. It's not enough evidence to say they racist. They drugged him and drove off the car. I don't know. I can't say. <laughs> anyway, much obliged. She said she doesn't know. Not a compliment. I did look at the frequency of that phrasing uh, mop of curls. And so I looked for a mop of blonde curls. And then I looked for a mop of black curls. The latter mop of black curls is used way more frequently, way more. And it's <laughs> I, Sam Bankman Friedman, FTX, white person, think I got his name correct, who was just convicted in all kinds of financial malfeasance. They said he slinked into court. <laughs> he slinked into court with a mop of black <laughs> I think that was when I stopped like, okay, I got it. <laughs> they didn't even, they didn't even put the slick on it, but the limited number of times where it was mop of blonde curls, one of the first ones that popped up Negro family has an albino child with a mop of blonde curls. And they had the image to be like, wow, that is, staggering at minimum not complimented because it almost seemed like that phrasing magnified the chaos lunacy of it all oh look how dark they are no anyway uh let's see email number three uh hi gus callers i feel the same way about this author as i do sue klebold her behavior is parasitic You asked about the title of the book. It seems this is Dante's story. So I guess the we were once a family title refers to him losing his family. Maybe she means uh, Dante. Dante. Uh, Oh, yeah. Sorry. It was just spelled different. Anyway, uh, I thought of Gavin DeBecker when the lawyer talked about holding on to the case files of Devante and his siblings for seven years longer than required eerily prescient uh, Miss Jones black female did she tell us that Miss Jones is a black female I have to go back and look to see that's the attorney down in Texas who was trying to keep uh, Devante and Sierra and his Jeremiah trying to keep all them down there and failed uh, let's see we heard from her today in fact she was in the introduction she said she knew those children never had a chance Four, I don't think we know half of the abuse the children experienced. Hanging signs around a child's neck offering free hugs to strangers is very suspicious. Jennifer was essentially pimping out Devante. What right-minded parent would do that? 
white or non-white. As a minimum, she put him at risk of being targeted by pedophiles. I would have expected social services to knock on my door if I had done the same thing with my daughter. Excellent point. I'm not a parent. Uh, but <laughs> that's why I said, I don't think we have to look, you know, for did they take the job seat, Jerry Sandusky, anything like that. I mean, in my view, the sex trafficking is right there. Five, it's been six years since the children were murdered. How many so-called professionals have been held to account for their failings in this case? I would suspect zero. They don't even call the hearts murderers. We're supposed to empathize with them. So whom exactly are you saying failed here? I'm not asking like in a town. I'm at like <laughs> who? I can't even pick out anybody. I mean, Sharon Kirby? Really? What did I do wrong? She wasn't taking him to medical appointments. Mr. Doctor, what, what do you mean? She was consistently ADHD. What did I do wrong? I put him with the Kang family. What did I do wrong? What? What? <laughs> you know, that's what it would be down the line. What did I do wrong? What? CPS workers, we tried to investigate. They hauled uh, their hind parts. We left cards. We got photographs of that. We called. We investigated. What did we do wrong? The hunger people. I would say some of them, yeah, yeah, some of the CPS, the Minnesota people, Minnesota, Oregon, at minimum, you investigate, there are bruises, they've been convicted before, it didn't seem like they shared or researched to get that additional information, like, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, anyway, let's see, number seven, mop, oh, <laughs> mop, of slick black curls is a racist statement in my opinion it's also not the author's only derogatory comment reference to black hair oh I'd have to go back to get some of the others something tells me Shirley Temple's curls would not be <laughs> referred to as a mop facts uh, much obliged okay that's her last one let's see the chapter 14 See if I can get through my notes quickly and we'll wrap it up next week. Uh, there are no children in the, I think that's such an important distinction because I thought of Thelma and Louise. And in fact, I used it this, I didn't even know it was going to be mentioned by like just being honest. I would have, you know, <laughs> said that I read ahead or whatever, but I really didn't. But I was thinking Thelma and Louise because that's such a celebrated film. That's why I said, I think they plan to do this. They, they will empathize. They'll think of us just like Gina Davis and that white woman. And yes, we were beat up and abused and the white man has held us down and we didn't have any other choice. Like, And that's for the most part, that's what ha the police report doesn't even call them murderers. Let me see. OK, this is how I use Thelma and Louise. So I wrote. Gus was not aware that these six non-white children were drugged prior to being killed by their white lesbian adoptive mothers, in quotes, as Garion will tell us how the children were swangoed before the white chicks went Thelma and Louise. The drugging part, the drug. But yeah, this is not Thelma and Louise. They did not have children in the vehicle, not even H. They didn't even have another adult in the car. Just us.
not going to get us self-terminating, not going to prison. That is not this like by a long shot. That's why I say metaphors and such all that. When people start making comparisons, investigate, because a lot of time it's an error. And particularly in the system of white supremacy, racism, it's going to be an error to the benefit of white people. Why would I mention a movie and say, oh, this is like Thelma and Louise. They're heroes. They're not villains. They're not criminals. That is a cult classic. They teach it in feminist courses, probably University of Washington or whatever college that's close to your region. Empathize with, you're always supposed to empathize with white people. It doesn't matter what they have done. How many people they have killed. That's why Tammy could be raped as a child. Grandma doesn't even report. They're supposed to be religious zealots. <laughs> what in the world? That's in the Bible, ain't it? About rape and all that. Uh, let's see. The only information that they give out about the birth family at all is Sherry is a crack user. <laughs> they say cocaine. I can't imagine. I think she even, I think that's another bit of lying by the author because I strongly suspect that they did not say she used cocaine. I suspect it would have been crack cocaine. I mean, that's in the, the parlance of racism that cocaine is the white. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. The slang for cocaine is the white lady. Cocaine is for white people. Crack is what niggers use. That's what they said. She didn't. She changed that. Uh, the groups had thousands of members and they shared theories and questions about the minute details of the case. Now, see, this is enough. All of this macaw. And we've been talking about true crime, right? All the way back. Joey 22, Columbine, Jeffrey Dahmer, all of that. True. Even January 6th. Been talking about it. White people love it. They're not combing through the. What can we do to make sure this never happens again? Let's, you know what? Let's start a food bank. I'm inspired. I don't never want to see no more poor and scraggly looking starving children begging for a peanut butter sandwich. No, 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 no. I got more pictures of where the car crashed at. And, ooh, this is where they found the foot at. And ooh, 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 did you know the mom was smoking crack? Ooh. White people kill for fun. Texas hasn't even improved. We've been playing clips from that the whole time. 49 deaths in the Texas foster care system in the last four years. All that studying for what? And recalcitrant about it. They said, whatever, we're not going to change nothing. Do what we want. It's Texas. Uh, Let's see. Black women in the group highlighting the racism the children experienced were sometimes silenced with their posts being removed and their ability to comment on some controversial posts getting turned off by moderators that right and I suspect this was a lot of white women because hey we've already been told true crime is predominantly white women and even look at this these white women drugged starved are convicted child abusers and murdered six non-white children the police refused to call them murderers And then if anyone, even in death, even in death, I think these chicks were racist. Shut up. Get out of here. What is that? 
violent propaganda. That's what I say about these Black Lives Matter. And then, and then, that's the same type of vitriol that ensnared Jen to begin with. That's why I said, like, okay, so if Leroy Orenthal James had drugged and driven off a cliff, you could six biracial children, non-white children, whatever, whatever. Really. Let's see. They go out and do the doxing of Sherry and dumping all of her, which is exactly what I've been pointing out in this book. We got to get every nook and cranny about Negro trauma, drama and no count Sherry with her mop of slick black curls and all of this. It's not that way for Tammy. They don't get to hear all the details about her racist family. She just has a maternal instinct, right? Let's see. Uh, He said, when I joined the group, I was heartbroken about what happened to these kids and wanted to know more. What I never expected was the amount of hate that is posted here. Not hate only toward the heart moms. Well, they did kill six people. Uh, But hate toward all white people, foster parents, adoptive parents, lesbians, another woman wrote in a different group saying there that a white person shouldn't adopt children of color is like saying a gay person shouldn't adopt a straight child. Uh, it's ridiculous and pretty damn racist. We can't even say that the heart children are racist. What do you mean? Coming back and saying something is racist. That's for one. For two, I'm even, even all of this, the author just told us these posts were moderated. Black women were, black females were booted, muted. Hey, got two rhymes. Uh, so how much of this were you seeing? Was it there for 30 seconds and that 30 seconds bothered you? And they say, oh, we got it. We got it. We already banned them from the group. Comment deleted. You'll never hear from them again. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> it took, oh, it's too late. It's too late. I'm disgruntled. And I didn't come here for all that. I came here to empathize with Jen and Sarah. I forgot the children's name, but I came here. To like, are you serious? Are you serious? We don't have anything better to worry about in 2018. We can have more pressing issues, people more worthy, more deserving of our empathy. Uh, Let's see. They said others trying to maintain a tone of kindness. I'm glad she put that in quotes. Resulted in more tightly controlling critical posts. They killed six people. Aren't you supposed to be? They've been criticizing OJ Simpson for 30 years. Not guilty, fellas. He didn't drug anybody, I don't think. I haven't heard that accusation yet about Rental James. Uh, when Tammy revealed herself publicly in one face group groups, she elicited kinder discussion, that word again, than Cheryl leading to more accusations of racism. At every step of the way, racist, even the decabs, Hannah comes here and says that they're being racist. After everyone's dead, they accuse us of being racist because we did report them for the food, not for the racism accusation. Every step of the way, it is racism. Why is that? Because that is the problem, the system on this here planet, no universe. It dominates all areas of people, activity, every aspect of this book, everything. 
how we talk about the white family, who gets removed, who has the ability to pay, who's going to be in these jobs. All it just goes on and on and on. Who gets moderated on the group and all of that. Do we even give you the classification of the person if they're classified as white? Let's see. Oh, and then we got plant rate OJ Simpson. I just said politics said Jennifer and Sarah played the lesbian card. Now, if we're invoking that sort of language, then we should be very deliberate about the racism of all of this to deliberately undermine black people. Black people's claims should be minimized, rejected, automatically assumed to be invalid. That's an aspect of racism. Call that out for what it is. This is something that white people do and are able to do successfully, really, because white people back up other white people's lies. You're just assumed to be a truth teller and all the rest of it if you're classified as white, disabled, male, female, gay, cisgender, LGBTQ, intersex, elderly, whatever. Automatically now, Sherry on there, you got crack vial in your back pocket. Uh, Let's see. When, as Gary and she says, by hyper-individualizing the story, making it about one woman with dark psychological problems, that is standard rhetoric of the white true crime community, Lauren pointed out, uh, the media largely let the state systems that failed the birth mothers off the hook metaphor. It let listeners and readers off the hook metaphor to free free to enjoy the wacky and bizarre tale without thinking of how it came to occur. One of the main reasons is because people do not care about black children, non-white children at all. That's one of the huge and like all of this is just really racial theater that's why you got all these wacky documentaries and even the one that we heard today thread of deceit where they had music behind the entire film i have never heard a documentary that is about a serious matter killing of murder of children i've never seen a serious documentary where they had music playing the entire time i think the only moments in that film where they silence the music is when they show some of the testimony from the inquisition and that's like brief that'll be a few seconds and then as soon as that bit from the inquisition testimony is done and it's back to the interviews with these white people empathizing with, oh and they just needed support and I got your back Jen I just want you to I got your back and they bring the music back to all, all of that too is on your emotions like oh yeah it's so sad and I do feel that they don't they wouldn't have done none of that they're not gonna have no violins soft piano if Asada had are you serious put some easy E up there like straight out of Compton uh, let me see uh, oh and the no dog that I mean uh, in my view she could have added an extra sentence because there's such a long history white dog there's such a long history of canines being valued more than black people, animals being valued more than black people. And even that's what I said, even if it's we got to kill Marquise and Jeremiah, eh, they got to go, you know, for us to really do it right. You know, 
get these documentaries and so we, 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 they gotta go they gotta go if that's the way it is they could have just bam we slipped a mickey in their you know smoothie or whatever and we leave the bodies on the beach and be done with it we take the dogs to the no kill shelter we drug the children we swangle them on the beach say a prayer bang then we do our Thelma and Louise which still wouldn't be that because they didn't murder anybody with a drug before but still no no got to kill him. Uh, let's see. 19 doses, I said, from Marquise. I think we had talked about that where people specifically were wondering why did he not fight back? Well, there you go. Uh, and incidentally, I did think it was important. There were Jen and Sarah's homies who said they thought Marquise, they said, you heard it in, in the audio we started with today. I never heard Marquis talk. The only time that I heard him speak up was when the birdie flew on the podium when Bernie Sanders came to Oregon to speak. 2016, somewhere in there. She said, that's the most excited I ever saw him. I thought we were told Marquis blossomed when he got to these white lesbian moms. He started talking and came out of his shell and all the rest of it. What? He certainly didn't gain much weight. And he, come on, come on. Uh, Let's see. Sheriff says they made a conscious decision. White people make conscious decisions to practice racism, white supremacy. I'm glad we got the details of them looking for the dosage and how much dosage and all the rest of it. What do they value? They value the dog. Do you value Devante? You show all these posts. You're about racial reconciliation and Black Lives Matter. We could at least, hey, hey, we don't want to leave rapists. So we'll take Devante and Jeremiah. No more black male rapists. But we'll leave Abigail and Hannah. Even Sierra. They're kind of tiny. You know, we'll, we'll let them be right on our sisters. Rock on, man. Represent the feminist man. Nah, nah, nah. They got to go, too. They got to go, too. <laughs> like, what? White people kill for fun. And they said, what did she say that she had? Did they say she had vodka in her system? Am I being retarded? Did she say vodka? I know they didn't say she had the vodka in her system. Because, I mean, man, we just read about the murder-suicide. Did they say vodka specifically? I don't know. Oh, they didn't say vodka specifically. They said alcohol. I'm going to have to see if it was vodka. Not that that would, you know. Uh that term euphemism that she uses when she talks about how the police officers did not classify this as a murder uh, and at the hands an, what was it death at the hands of another other than by accident Lauren talked about that as well euphemism is another word for lie we talk about obfuscating and minimizing all of these are tools of master deceivers even not calling lies lies that these are euphemisms and such they're lying accuracy man is the beginning and really they're lying practicing racism really not because I mean hey if it had been Leroy come on come on I don't think they would have had that much concern for Leroy Asada spent even if Asada was LGBTQ come on man come on even if Leroy said hey I'm not a black raping male. I'm non-binary, please. 
Leroy and your non-binary family, you're going to be murdering Leroy around here. Uh, and incidentally, I do think, I don't compare this to officer-involved shooting. I compare at the hands of persons unknown. That's exactly what it is. It's almost the exact same language. There's a total absolute, we're not even saying murder. That is exactly what it is at the hand connected to that lineage of lynching. That's exactly what this is. And then you have the sheriffs cover it up. We don't know who did it. Isn't the mayor in a photograph at this lynching? We don't know who did it. Death at the hands of persons unknown. Weren't you in the photograph? Death at the hands of persons unknown. Uh, let's see. Kid glove treatments metaphor. The, and that's one. White people, when they commit criminal acts, generally racism, they are infantilized. That's the ignorance and the naivete and all the rest of it. That is consistent even when they'll have white criminals. Dylan Storm Roof comes to mind. They'll talk about him as though he's a child. He was over 18 when he committed those crimes. Same thing for Peyton Jenrin. Well, he'll be talking about, oh, this young child, this young kid, you know, he just got on one. This is an adult, man. He could have joined the Marines, enlisted, all of that. This is an adult. This is an adult white man. They do the exact opposite. They see Tamir Rice. They see Devontae Hart. Uh oh. We got. 30-year-old potential rapist. Uh, he's in racially restricted region of Washington, Oregon, Minnesota. Might be related to George Floyd. We don't know. Keep an eye on him. Begging for food. Oh, keep an eye on him. He's begging for food. Yep, keep an eye on him. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> like, come on, man. Come on. Uh, let's see. This family stress. They got multiple mentions of the family stress. Come on. And the blonde spots. Love that. Lauren got that. It's so consistent. That's the same thing. Infantilizing and blind spots. Like, come on. Come on. This is not. And really, I can't even say that the mainstream or anyone had blind spots here. All of this, just like the hearts, deliberately drug those children, poisoned those children and killed them, then drove them off the cliff, double whammy them, because I think Marcus would have died anyway, don't you think? 19 times the dosage? I think he would have died anyway. Same thing with the other children. We got to double whammy them, poison them, and then drive them off the cliff. Same way that they deliberately did all of that, dropped the dogs off beforehand and everything. White people, it's the same way with lynching, the willful absolution we don't know who did this we're not going to call this murder we're going to empathize they were stressed they were under pressure we got those no count negro homophobes out there talking about cracker lesbians shouldn't have done them. all the rest of that. you don't do that if it's a non-white criminal or with, hey Orenthal James Orenthal James matter of fact take away Barack Obama I don't think he's a criminal. Has he been convicted of anything? He certainly didn't poison and kill any children. Al Sharpton. I don't think he poisoned and killed any children. They get less sympathy than the hearts. 
that's by design that's not no blinders or where we're supposed to white people are always benefit of the doubt our sympathy they just went crazy that's what you do with every shooter deal and rip they also deliberately planned it took years they did the same thing they did the exact same thing these white murder suiciders sat there and planned this out for what a year and a half at least in detail wrote about it and bragged about we're going to do all of this and they sit around oh they just went crazy you know they were picked on you know people just teased and bullied it's a shame the way they were they did the exact same it's like they got a script didn't it anytime a white well you know they were just picked on and and te- that's what they did the shooter out in uh, idaho perry uh, excuse me iowa perry iowa they did the same thing well you know he was teased and picked on that's why he had to go and shoot up the whole he didn't even go shoot up the school that he attended he went and shot up an elementary school middle school excuse me when it shot up a middle school that middle school is picked on him well you know Let's see. Oh, I thought it was so important. She said that uh, the child welfare system held a common assumption that these six black children must be better off with the white women who adopted them. I thought that was important because she had before told us that Hannah, Abigail, Marquise were biracial. I, you know, they got a white parent. Are they just all black? Because that was something that I had talked about before. Are we just are we seeing that six black children? That's what she said. Six black children. Is that how we should think about this? I think it matters that they have a white parent or does it? They still all went off the route. And, and they said that uh, Jen allegedly had special animus for Marquise. And I think it was Hannah. And they both had a white parent. So I don't know. I mean, is it just she killed six niggers and that's it? Negras is negras. They had a white mom. Three of them did, but meh. Negras is negras. I thought that was significant. The last one, uh, the assumption was pushed forward by Jen herself uh, in the lurid description. That's kind of sexual connotation to it, which maybe, that's why I said the sex trafficking is right here. It's right here. She said uh, lurid descriptions she gave of the children's past and accounts of their disturbing behavior she shared when they came to live with her and Sarah and that was one that we even questioned the validity and I think as Garion did as well in saying you know they came to the house and were acting all wild like they were possessed and all the rest of it like is this true <laughs> what you know there's no way to val- uh, to verify and all the rest of it so yeah anyway uh, we will wrap it all up uh, next week um, I have learned quite a bit. I can't say that I've enjoyed the book. I can't say it's one of my favorites, but I've learned quite a bit uh, reading this. And even the poisoning, like I think that if anything, I would say cases like this where it takes a long time, where they have to go and get the evidence and all this starts in March of 2018. And it might take months and what have you for all of the information to come out and sometimes it comes out in little bits at a time so you'd have to follow it can be so easy they have shootings all the time and everything happening to get distracted and you're on to something else you have your own personal issues you just don't have time to keep up with everything but the details are so important uh, just literally in terms of understanding white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works, details like having a definition of racism, details even like, hey, someone says that this person is racist. What do you mean? What did they do? What did they say? Racist how? Which we fail to get frequently in this book, but 
details details so you know critically uh, important for our understanding but I did not have the I mean just that alone these children were poisoned and then killed 19 19 times that's the sort of thing like I want you to cape for them 19 and even how was this dosage administered Did you get a smoothie? Did you get food? Is this a force feeding type of thing? What are we talking about? That's a lot of pills. How do you get 19 pills or more? They said, how do you get 19 pills into someone? I'm even trying like it would have to be. a. I mean, there is no way in the world. Like what sort of substance am I stuffing this in? A cake, ice cream. What am I putting this in where I would not catch Oh, this is kind of what is hmm, something round or like 19 of them 10 of them 4 of them come on man that would be the lead in all this like before we get to caping and they were stressed and all the rest of it Marquise had 19 doses and then we went off the cliff and then we went off the cliff. What does it mean to be white? I would be embarrassed to say that these were my home. Like, who goes out and pumps that? Man, Jeff Dahmer, that was my homie, man. You know, <laughs> we used to kick it, man. We went out to the festivals, man. Woo! Made the best homemade hummus you wouldn't believe. Who does that? Any hoodles. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow. Neutralizing workplace racism. And we are all done next Thursday. We were once a family still looking for love. Sobriety would be best. That's one thing, right? We heard from the text. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No throwaway offspring. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.